Hi, everybody, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour is always a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Second hour, typically a deeper dive into a topic, and today you are going to see your panel in HDR. Uh, we've been in this process of migrating to a possible HDR chain, and I think Alex has been spending a lot of time and effort to get it up, and today we are going to do a ruthless review of each panelist as we look in the new HDR environment. So we're looking forward to that. Alex, what's our first question for today? Our first question for today is from Cindy Drozda in Erie, Colorado. And Cindy asks, is it possible to connect a camera to an ATEM Mini, upstream key out the green background, and output it with a transparent background to be used as an overlay in vMix? If not, would the Ultimat do it? And Guy Cochran's going to help us out here, Guy. Hey, so that's a good question. The first thing that you could do, but it's not going to look as clean, is to go ahead and do your key in the ATEM Mini, but you will have a black background, and then you could take that black and you could dump that out in in vMix, but that's that's not the, the perfect way of doing it. The perfect way, two options, the Ultimate, the 495 version, will do the compositing in the box, which probably doesn't help you because you probably want to use vMix to load your your backgrounds in, which you could do with that 495 device, but again, it's it's going to uh, smash it down. That's your composite. The next step up is the $895 version, which has two SDI inputs. And with that one, you can actually do two SDI outputs, which are uh, key and fill. And then in vMix, when you add an input, there is a box there that says uh, uh, use as key fill. And so you check that, and that will give you that transparency. So the box that you need, uh, so you need a couple pieces. It, it's uh, SDI capture card into vMix, and you need the $895 version of the uh, Ultimate, because the other one, the base level one, only has HDMI. So there's quite a bit going on there, and this also works with Mimo Live now. Well, I don't know if it's been released to the public, but we had them... We, for our purposes, for the one but studio, we specifically needed what vMix does, which is uh, separates those two out. So you will be able to do it in Mimo Live in the next release that uh, should be out if it's not already out. And uh, yeah, hopefully that helps answer your question. Alex, you had something to add? Yeah, I would just say that, uh, you know, always approach green screen with caution. Uh, I think a lot of people overuse it. I think the one button studio is a perfect example of why you'd want to use it. But there's many, many other times when people are using it where it's not a great solution. If there's a way for you to find a physical background, um, you always want to try to use it over that. But, uh, but the Ultimate does work very well uh, if, you, if you need it. Next question. Next question is from, sorry, this is still not working. Hold on. Um, next question is from Zach Phillips. Um, As a Mac OS veteran of 33 years, I am ashamed to ask this question. Why does my Mac always seem to restore a set of apps and windows from a randomly chosen moment in time on every restart, even when I tell it not to? And John Snyder's going to help us. John? Yeah, you shouldn't be embarrassed for asking that question. Uh, Apple's gotten a lot less stable on its window management and restoration over the last uh, 10 years, I would say. Three places you might want to check is first, when you restart, there's a checkbox in the restart dialog that says reopen windows from last session. Make sure that's unchecked. In settings general, there's an application by application checkbox that says something like um, reopen windows after you close a program. But the one you'd really want to look at is under your user settings uh, in system preferences. Check your user account for login items and see if there's anything that's allowed to turn on on login that you maybe were not aware of. 
Nice answer. Thank you very much. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy asks, our Zoom cloud recordings are at 25 frames per second. Is it best to use 30p cameras or should I try to match Zoom's frame rate? Yeah, this is... Um this is a process. There are so many different frame rates now, and I think it's gotten better over the course of time. In the early days, um, I always tried to keep everything exactly the same, but the pull-ups and pull-down, which is kind of the technical process of taking one frame rate and matching it to another, have gotten more automatic and better over time. Alex, you had additional thinking? Yeah, I would really, if for a, for a meeting that matters, I'd really think about recording it outside of Zoom. <laughs> so Zoom's going to record 25. It should be delivering at 30 frames per second. And so you should be able to do something that allows you to have some kind of, if, if it matters, if you're really looking at like it matters enough to change the kind of cameras you're using, then what you should do is record using something like Zoom ISO or or even just a Zoom room or something that's going to be a participant that's going to look at your 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 view uh, because it's it the 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 cloud recording is bad <laughs> like it's just it's just bad like it's just it's a, it's a horrible term. quality it's just horrible quality so if, if you're thinking about it if you're if for things that are just like hey we just want to remember what we said it's fine like it, it works great as a as a perfunctory you know thing to do but i would never uh, if i cared about my frame rate uh, i would never use a cloud recording uh david paskin has thought as well david uh, not a thought more of a question for alex why is that why are Zoom cloud recordings so crummy? Money. <laughs> like it just costs money. Like, you know, the, why do you, what we, so the, the thing is, is that it's uh, 20, at 24, we used to do Mac break video. And when we did it, we did it all at 24 frames per second. And you can, I talk a lot about how much I dislike 24 frames a second. And the reason we did that was, money like it was less money it was one sixth less um bandwidth and i at the time i was paying for it so it's one it, you know it's just a, it's a chunk less to do it that way and so 25 is kind of a minimum broadcast i mean maybe they have other technical reasons for doing it but it does save it it literally you know slices off one sixth of the cost of storing it and to manage it and and so those you know and, and all of those things and so it, it when you think about it in large amounts that can turn into millions and millions of dollars of savings by just carving that off you have to remember that like when they build buildings they have to watch out because the contractors will cut off one eighth inch of the thickness of the wall and save like you know twenty thousand dollars. So, so it's it's just one of those things that you uh, uh, just cutting off little shaving those little things off make a difference. I think that that's the reason. I don't think there's any good technical reason for it. Chris Fenwick, you wanted to weigh in on this. Alex, the best cost saving story I ever heard. A friend of mine told me a story about how they changed the font back in the old days of phone books. They changed it from one font to another and saved millions yeah. in ink. It's less ink. They yeah, changed exactly. a font. Thin. Yeah, the exactly. other thing I was going to say is that a lot of us are starting to getting these um, nasty, not nasty, uh, uh, um, uh, messages from Zoom saying, hey, your cloud recording is really full. Uh but I know, your, your story, I know yeah. yours is super, super overkill. Uh uh, Doug Ferguson's was 11, 1100% of what it's supposed to be, you know, like that's nothing. mine was, yeah, I know that's amateur numbers. Uh, mine was like 360% of what it was supposed to be. What it, do you care to mine, share? I, mine, mine is. Did you get the message? Did you oh, get the message that says, only, please? I didn't get the message. I've been getting the message for years. I, I, I got cut off this week. So this week I got cut off. Like I can't do cloud recordings on the own. I know account until, and I, now I'm in trouble because I have to figure out how to get them all off. And, 
It was funny that I, I started searching for what is a script to take all everything off of Zoom, and Rupert is the one that actually answered it in the Zoom thing. So I'm trying to get a hold of Rupert to say, hey, how do I actually do this? Because uh, I need a script that's going to pull them all off because it's 500 and some shows from office right. hours that I don't necessarily want to give up. And, it, and the, just the warning is 1.6 terabytes of 58 <laughs> gigs. <laughs> Oh, man. So, so it's like you're allowed to have 58 and you have 1.6 terabytes of it. And they just didn't say anything. It sent warnings, but it didn't do anything. So I was like, yeah, you know, we'll see. I'll get around to it. It just, when I started downloading them one at a time and it was super painful. And so I was like, oh, I'll get around to this. And it's just, Maybe you should just drive down to Zoom headquarters with a hard drive and say, hey, it's Alex. Oh, yeah, we've been expecting you. Come in the back door. You know, there are some things to, to remember. You can, I think, I, bl I believe the display shows you like 15 at a time. You can, if you're, if it's something you have to do, you can search for like a show name and say, oh yeah, I totally don't need those. You can select them all and delete them 15 at a it time. It would actually but. take me longer to figure that out. Like, you know, to me, I'm just kind of like, I just want to download them all into a drive. And so I think that we as a group probably want them to be around because they weren't saved anywhere. So, you know, we don't know. So I'm, I, anyway, I, I'm, <laughs> I, uh, so, I'm, so now we have to record locally until but I to our point, the question, uh, uh uh, David's question was, why is this? And you said money. It's it's hitting them and somebody has the initiative right now. Hey, we have to clear storage. off some hard we have to clear off some hard drives here. Yeah. <laughs> They've been very understanding. I I you know, I, no shade on, on Zoom. They've been very understanding for a very long period of time uh, for me to put up so much leave so much stuff just sitting there. So uh, I don't I don't have any upset about you it. You know it's bad when everybody else gets an email and you get somebody showing up at your door. Going, yeah, they're like no uh, problem. <laughs> yes. No credit for you. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next, sorry, I forgot it was me. Uh, next question is from Glenn Motto in Richmond, uh, Virginia. And Glenn asks, Alex mentioned recently that he likes to purchase from Amazon because of easy returns. What items should not be purchased on Amazon uh, due to risk of knockoffs, bogus items, et cetera? John Snyder stutters. John? I think the bigger risk is the sellers that you're choosing rather than whether or not you purchase it from Amazon. So be really careful. In my previous life, I was a food safety manager and I would not purchase anything that would pose any sort of food safety risk, anything made out of thin glass or anything living or anything dead. There you go. David Paskin? I actually think the biggest risk is managing expectations. Uh, same day and next day delivery has destroyed any other company for me. If, if, if it takes more than a day to receive something, I find myself so impatient and it's just, it's, it, it really is a problem, I think. <laughs> Alex. Yeah, I think that what Jeff Bezos used to say, you know, your, your margin is my opportunity. And I think it's your convenience is my, inconvenience is my opportunity as well. Uh, the, the hard part is, is that to exactly what David said. I mean, I problem is I have everything all packaged up in, in Amazon. So it's very easy for me to order something really, really fast from my phone. Oh, I think about something, I just order it. And I know that if I don't like it, the next time I go shopping in Whole Foods, I'm just going to drop that thing off on a box with a QR code and send it back. And that is, it just makes it super hard to justify, you know, like the time it takes for me to figure out if everything, I'm already, I mean, I'm well trained. Like I, I open up things and I very carefully take them apart and I take everything I take off of them goes back in the box and I, un, and I cut my, like the labels, I cut everything with a, with a razor, with a razor blade or, you know, a utility knife or whatever. And I'm very, very careful about how I unpack things so that I can repack them and send them back. You know, And, and so, uh, and I've been doing that for years, but with Amazon, they actually tell you they don't want you to bring the box because it takes up too much space. Like that you literally get instructed not to bring the box. I, I bring it anyway, because I don't know what to put 
I don't know how to hold it otherwise. But um, but it's it is a uh, uh, it's super convenient. I think as far as avoiding things, anything that's too good to be true is probably not. It's still probably still good too good to be true. Uh, we a lot of us got caught up in the in the stream deck, the infamous uh, uh, stream stream deck. With, uh, what was it the uh, the stream scam of 2021 um, was, was what we got. And I have to admit, I knew it wasn't going to happen, but I wanted to see. I wanted to see what the mechanics were of it. Um, I still haven't got my stream deck. So anyway, and I haven't gotten a return. I haven't gotten a refund either. So that was. Um, so uh, so anyway, that you have to be careful. Anything too good to be true. I don't. I have very rarely gotten any knockoffs. I mean, when I buy something, I kind of know that it's a cheap version or a not a cheap version. Um, but if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Um, yeah, it's interesting to me that there are now websites that sell Amazon return boxes, and I don't even think they open them. I think they do, you know, what Alex is talking about. People at the shops, the various places, UPS stores, and every place else, they have a box. People bring their stuff back, toss it in there, and then at some point it ends up as one of those closeout bundles uh, online that people buy and then go through and figure out what they found. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Walt Palmer in Lewis, uh, uh, Delaware. And Walt asks, one of my announcers is getting hearing aids and has asked I create a Bluetooth connection for his devices. Can you recommend a transmitter with the lowest latency? And Guy Cochran's going to help us out, Guy. Yeah, I'd probably go with the Oddnate version of their Bluetooth Dante adapter. It's about 324 bucks. Uh, looks like this. And basically that's Ethernet and broadcast I-O, so in or out Bluetooth. That's an expensive solution, but it's probably the best if you want the best. Yeah, I have a little experience with the inexpensive ones because I used to try to do a little bit of Bluetooth uh, microphone plug-on transmitter to see if that would work. And in all cases, the latency was so annoying that I dumped it after one attempt at it. So uh, even though that may seem like a lot, I would go with the better engineering if you want as low latency as possible. And as a former announcer who did a lot of announcing, latency can be a real problem if you're trying to do stuff live. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Zach Phillips in uh, Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania. And Zach asks, has anyone tried uh, the OBSBOT USB to HDMI converter with the Insta360 link? And if so, can the Insta's controller still see and control the camera? We had a discussion about this uh, kind of in the time before the show where we were going through things. And by the way, you might want to tune in for some of that because it's a really interesting chat. And uh, the bottom line was we do think there's a control thing in there. Alex, you had more more notes? Uh, yeah, no, I, I have. Uh, this is. So that is the op, that's the Insta360 going through the OBSBOT um, converter. And I cannot control it. <laughs> ah, okay. So, 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 so the, so, the uh, so if I, you know, I can't. Uh, now, one thing I haven't tried yet is, um, but it's that is going. That's the Insta360 going into my ATEM uh, directly. So it is a USB camera that it's going into there. The thing I haven't tested is I haven't gotten around to getting the the little controller. So there's a little mini controller that 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 Obsbot makes that may be able to send UVC commands to send this. And I realized I hadn't when I put this together for this morning. I realized oh I haven't tried that. So. I'll order one of those and see if we can't see if we can't get it to work. Um, but it it passes the video. It is very sensitive. I don't know what's it sensitive, but something sensitive to the amount of power going into the way that the Obspot handles power is cheap. So um, what the, what I mean by that is, if I, I hooked it up to a I don't know I have a hundred watt connection, you know, uh, you know, on a USB C because it has a power input. And the OpSpot didn't do anything, but when I when I clicked the link, it just went, oh nope. <laughs> like so, it's passing that that it's not doing a a, a graceful power delivery to the Insta360, 
Um, so just know that. And so I plugged it into a cheaper, lower powered USB-C and it worked fine. The, um, the, I do have the controller going in um, to the, I don't know what the controller actually does. I, well, I think that the USB control input is for the, their controller. It's not for a computer. So that's what I think happened there. So it doesn't appear that it, it can take those commands from the computer or connect. It's a real bummer because, man, I'd buy a lot of these. with. I'd buy one with every one of my little Insta360s if I... If it, if it could control from the software, but the software can't see the Insta360. And I think the software is half of the product. Uh, it's, it's a really, it's the best camera control software ever made for a USB camera. And so I think that that's half of what makes the Insta360 what it is. So anyway, I, it doesn't, it does work. It does pass video. It just doesn't let you control it. We'll ask again in about a week and I'm, I'm ordering it today. I just, I was pre prepping this this morning and realized that I should order it. So there you go. There you go. Next question. Next question is from Steve Podmore in London. And Steve asks, hi, uh, for podcast video studios, is it possible to use a fixed fixed audio mics, MV7s, podca podcasters, et cetera, rather than ceiling mics uh, through a roadcaster or pod track to trigger PTZ presets for the video follows audio uh, going uh, to the ATEM Mini Pro ISO or Extreme? So there are systems out there that are set up for video follows audio, uh, but I think you need more than just a simple solution. Alex, you have thoughts? Yeah, you should be able to do that. I mean, so th the main thing is, is it's not a matter of where the cameras are. You can definitely have fixed uh, mics. Uh, it's just a matter of of what this is. I believe using the um, uh, Mix Effect Pro's uh, video follows audio, and uh, I believe that it has to be. You need to embed it in the cameras um, to have it jump from one to the next. I don't. I don't know if you can build a more robust system. But what this does is, it, for those of you who don't know what what he's talking about, there is that it it connects. Um, it it says, okay, well, if I hear video from this source, I'm going to go ahead and switch to that camera. And and I haven't used it in Mix Effect Pro. We've built complicated versions of this in the past where we didn't need it because it was going into a mixer and the mixer was outputting data and so on and so forth and so the but but with this one i believe it needs to be in those inputs uh it doesn't it shouldn't matter you just have to embed it and you have to figure out how you're going to connect that mic but whether it's a ceiling mic or a fixed mic it should work just fine yeah, I've also seen in these kind of automated systems where you're trying to do video follows audio. It's great in some circumstances, like where everybody is well behaved. If you get into those circumstances where you get three people on a panel and they're trying to talk over each other, the system can get confused and not know which camera needs to go to because it's getting three signals at the same time and it can't make up its mind. But the systems that is, work and in the right cases. Yeah, and this is where um, what we did was really use, we actually passed it through a mixer so we could use Duke and Automix because then it kind of made it clearer of what's, what's actually happening there. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Next question. Next question is from Guy Cochran in uh, Seattle, uh, Washington. And Guy asks, uh, how does Create compare to OBS and vMix? And he has a link. Oh, that's interesting. I just lost my screen. Uh, who's up next? I I up next, I'll go ahead and throw the ball to myself. Kind yeah, of intercepted you? from When himself. you asked it, I was like, I hope Guy shows up for the... He asked... Guy asked the question before he was on the panel. And I was like, I hope Guy shows up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is one where uh, I was researching how to best bring um, Zoom participants into a, a broadcast. And there was a, a video engineering uh, group question of the same. And a lot of people said that there was this company called Quick Link, which if you remember the old new tech uh, Skype TX boxes uh, that were like 
seven grand. They make something similar uh, for the modern age. Uh, that went a little long in the tooth. But they also have this really cool software called Create. So I downloaded it and started poking around. And this is what it looks like. It's kind of like OBS, but the, the cool thing about it is it, these inputs here can be SRT, they can be NDI, they can be uh, Blackmagic. Uh, so I have a deck link in here so I could make uh, one of these buttons a, um, a, uh, a deck link input. The crazy thing is that uh, with my touch screen, I can touch any of these. So I could touch preview program and you know it has the standard things where you know you can switch things around but these are templates that are built in so if you want to bring in somebody from zoom somebody from their quick link somebody from teams you could have them all in here and the crazy thing is that there's 48 so like i'm pressing this button here that gives me 48 inputs and then there's another option that you could hit 96 inputs mm-hmm. Uh, so pretty crazy uh, piece of software. It It is not free. So the difference between OBS and this software is that it does cost money. It's 60 bucks, same as vMix is 60 bucks. But this one, just for simplicity, it's pretty, pretty interesting. I think a lot of people here will enjoy uh, some of the things that it does, like uh, these has 48 multi-views. I mean, just just the multi-views alone, being able to, to arrange uh, 48 multi-views of a combination of SRTs, it, there's just so many possibilities. Uh, the settings and some of the videos that I've been watching. So here, here's where you could stream output to SRT or RTMP. Uh, you can choose your bit rate and you can record and uh, here's audio, video. Uh, there's also a lot of different hotkeys and automations that you can do. So it's worth, I think somebody in our group is really going to love this. I don't know who, but uh, you're welcome for me showing it to you. So go, <laughs> go play, download if you have a PC and plan for you Mac folks. I, I'm sorry, you might have to go, uh, well, I can't put it on parallels. It's too too much of a resource hog, but Fun to look at, fun to play So with. it looks like an interesting solution. Hey, don't forget, uh, your votes matter here. If you've been in the system for a while, you know that in the Makana system, people ask questions. Everybody is throwing questions at the show, but then the voting on the question, it determines what goes to the top and what we spend the most time on and answer in the most depth. So always your votes are very important. And... Uh, if you want to get and take another look at the system and add more votes, that will make the show even better for everyone. Uh, Alex, you had another thought about that? Yeah, and also make sure to ask questions as well. <laughs> so as you can vote on the questions, you can ask those questions all, all throughout the hour. Um, and uh, as far as the as far as the question here, I think that one of the things I'm interested in, and we're looking at Mimo for this as well, is the potential of being able to rebuild how we do the grid you know, that we have. So should we, could we have a piece of software that instead of running through an MV16 and then just putting a mortise over top of it, could we build a more complex grid that could be, that could be, you know, six, instead of just 16, nine, four, 16, 12, 13, 14, and have different settings for those based on who's there. So that's something that we're, that we're looking at across the board. So this, this could be an interesting solve for that. Let's head off into the next question. Next question is from uh, Alexander Knight uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia. And Alex asks, has anyone run into this Instagram issue? I post shorts every day and suddenly I get a can't be invited as a collaborator uh, when trying to bring a guest in. They check their tagging permissions and they're fine. Interesting. And Alexander had raised his hand on his own question. Alexander, do you want to clarify things or add more? Yeah, I just find that the Instagram app has being very, very buggy lately. And and this is one thing that I have not been able to resolve over the last couple of days, which is frustrating for my client and also for the guests that we want to collaborate on because 
Um, they can post, they can share the video on their own social stream and we also get the data from that as well. So it's very peculiar. We've never had a problem in the past. He showed me screenshots of his settings. Everything looks fine there. I just don't have an explanation for it. Um, yeah, I just, I'm curious if anybody else has run into this. Alex has some thoughts, Alex. So allowing that tagging is, is it's, it's someone approving someone, they're approving to be tagged. Is that the? Yeah. So you can invite somebody to, when you invite someone to collaborate on a video, they basically can basically share that post on their, mm -hmm. their own stream. Right. But your permissions have to be set up properly because if you, if you request approval for tagging, it means that if somebody tries to invite you, it won't work. But he sent me screenshots. Everything looks fine. Now, we went through every single possible privacy setting. His account is fully public, so it should. Oh, so you're be saying a that they, that they are tagged already? They're doing the tag. All those permissions are there and still not working. It's still not like I, I tap on the user's account and it's grayed out and it comes up with a message and it says this person can't be invited as a collaborator, which is really odd. But is it? Is it? Do you think it's a permissions thing on their end? Well, that's what I that's what I thought at first, um, because actually I tried to select other people that we f we both follow each other mm -hmm. and I, I could actually select other accounts without a problem. So mm. but it's, it's very, thing. very odd because the permissions look correct. And then I started running into other weird bugs like I we I actually tried to boost a, a a post and then Instagram rejected the ad. And then I went to delete the post and I couldn't delete it. It just says something went wrong. Come back later. So, yeah, it sounds like it could be in some kind of permissions issue. I, I, one of the things about it is a lot of times they're trying to protect VIPs and folks that are that might get invited into something they didn't want to be in or, or something that they haven't set their permissions up. And so I know we've had issues in the past where for a variety of reasons, you have to friend this account or you have to. We had issues for the last decade of, of these kind of collaboration tools. And they're usually there to protect someone who's an actor or a musician or or someone that's well known in Instagram that is that you know couldn't they don't want to just accidentally do it they have to really think through it and go through the the, the process to bring them in so it's probably something you're going to have to find that they you know what I would do is slowly get another account and slowly turn things up until it's available and figure out what those things are. And then it just has to be what you ask them to do. It might be that they're, that they have to post something or they have to like you, or they have to, you know, you know, be connected in some way, shape or form before they're able to do it. But that's been a problem across the board in many places. And they may have just tightened it up because usually what happens is something bad happened and then they, and then there was a meeting and then they made it a bunch of new rules. <laughs> like, and so that's, they usually, most of these organizations don't do it on purpose. They don't try to think out in, into the future. They just start putting things in, but then they start adding rules when someone does something horrible with it, or even just they can, once someone does something that they can see where that could go wrong, a bunch of screws get tightened to make sure that they don't get themselves in trouble again or in the future. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from David Brady in New York, New York. And David asks, OS 10 Ventura, when I'm in the office and hook up to an extended display, every so often the dock magically migrates to the extended display. Is there a way to lock it to a particular display and prevent this annoyance? I'm not sure yet, but I wish you could find out because I have this problem occasionally as well. Most of the time, the dock behaves just fine and it sits on the bottom of my laptop, which is where I want it. But occasionally, and I've got three monitors connected to this laptop, occasionally it will migrate to one of the other ones. The only way I can get it back easily is to go into the dock controller 
uh, specify a position, doesn't matter which one, if I say, you know, right and then go back to center, it comes back to my main monitor. But it's been vexing me for a little while, so I hope that they put in some way to lock it. Alex, do you have any other intelligence on it? I have a lot of monitors. Uh, it, it's going to want to go to the far end. So whatever the far end is, so if it, it's probably when it's magical, it's probably because the monitor has been laid out to the side of the, the side that has the dock. And if you ha- lay out the monitor to the side that doesn't have the dock, it probably stays right where, where it's supposed to be. If you put it on the other side, it's going to go all the way to the end and put it there. And so um, uh, I have mine on the bottom and it doesn't move. <laughs> so so mine is set to the bottom of my of my dock, which has other issues uh, related to some apps and so on and so forth. So I have to kind of be careful. Um, I do have it hiding, um, but you will find that it will always want to go to the far end. So probably the times it didn't happen was probably because you 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 adjusted the monitor to be on the side opposite to where the uh, where the dock is. Interesting. All right. Well, hopefully that helps, David. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Zach Phillips in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And Zach asks, I just turned on an old monitor I got for free with a telecine. It appears to be completely unused as the plastic is still on the controller. When I turned it on, uh, the color melted my face off. <laughs> Wow, that's I really, Zach, I feel bad. I hope I hope the trip to the uh, emergency room went okay. Uh, anyone familiar with the Dolby PR forty two hundred picks in chat? And Alex raised his hand. Alex, do you have any experience with this thing? Uh, I have. Um, I I think that what you're what he was talking about with the it's it's a very high knit. It's probably at the time I believe it was probably the brightest LCD made. Um, and I don't remember what it was in today's in. Today's uh, monitors is probably wouldn't be considered the brightest monitor out there. Um, I, I can't remember what it was, but I think it was 1,500 or 2,000 nits or something like that. I've actually seen Dolby makes a 4,000 nit, um, uh, and they actually make a 30,000 nit uh, monitor that's a projector behind <laughs> behind a transparency. I haven't seen that one, but I have seen the 4,000. It's, it's pretty bright. Um, so, But finding a 4200, I just want to put in perspective that you found, it's like finding a Corvette in a barn for the house that you just bought. Like you bought a barn, you bought a house and you went to the barn and there's like a 63 Corvette that has a tarp over it with a bunch of hay and it's got like 40 miles on it is what it took to get get home. I mean, that's what that's what buy, finding this monitor is like. So it's, it's I think it's only 1080p, but it was when it was sold, I believe it was fifty five thousand or fifty six thousand dollars for this monitor. So it is a it's a classic, um, and so I would I would definitely enjoy having the fact that you have this great monitor. I mean, there's a lot of monitors that at five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars today that probably do the same thing it's not quite the same as a corvette in that sense but um but it is uh it's a great monitor and hopefully you you get to enjoy it let's go to the next question uh next question is from alexander knight in vancouver british columbia and alex asks when using a polarizing filter to minimize glare is there also a slight loss of light and the answer would be yes, there's going to be a slight loss of light. Uh, what polarizers do is they send, a, it's essentially like a, a very microscopic Venetian blind. It tries to orient the light so that the light comes in a consistent kind of direction. Uh, the variable ND polarizers just use two, and that's why if you move them uh, in a circle, it'll completely shut things down. And that's very useful if you want to increase your aperture on a bright day or something like that. But each one of them is polarizing the light, and there will be some at least fractional loss. Alex, you had more thoughts? 
yeah, it's not just fractional loss. It'll actually change the nature of someone's skin. So I had one for a little while. I was using it in office hours and I was very excited because I put some polarizing filters on the lights and then I put them on the camera. And then I was really excited because I didn't get, I was able to get rid of any glare on my, on my, uh, on my, on my glasses uh, because of that. But over time, I realized as I really compared it before and after that it was, it had a kind of a negative effect on how my skin looked. Uh, it, it is going to change that nature. So I think I would definitely consider a polarizing filter as NDs are fine, but I would consider a polarizing filter something you shoot nature with, not people. Um, and I, and I learned that the hard way. <laughs> so, I think so, that's yeah. sensible. Yeah. When you think yeah. about it, uh, polarizing, you know, one of the things you want is light coming from all directions to hit your skin. That's the purpose of a soft box is to get light yeah. rays from a lot of different angles. So if you have a bump or some sort of, uh, uh, blemish that it fills in and creates no shadows. When you polarize it, it takes away one of those angles and would make that look a little more present. So I, that makes perfect sense to me. Alexander, you had another thought? Yeah, I appreciate your input. That's one thing I noticed too. And I, being as, as, as someone who doesn't really know anything about polarizing filters, I know what they're supposed to do, but that was the one of the first things I did notice was the, the color quality mm -hmm. in my skin. I just, my, my first reaction was, that does not look good. It does not. <laughs> it should not be done. <laughs> so, so yeah, so there you go. It's great out when you've got clouds on a on a lakescape and you want the clouds to really stand out. Those filters work beautifully, but faces, not so much. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Marcelo uh, Moyano in New Jersey. And Marcelo asks, today I saw the new DGI, DJI uh, Ronin 4D Flex. Besides hurting our wallets, what do you think about this camera gimbal? Alex? Yeah, I watched it. I watched a, a couple of reviews. Uh, my wife made me stop because I think the, 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 the way the person was talking made her crazy. But it was a great review. There's like a 17-minute review about it. Uh, it is – so a lot of these cameras, it, it, it's, it's pretty revolutionary. I, I'm kind of surprised they can do what they're doing with this camera. So what it basically does is the 4D is, is, is DJI's uh, – it's their kind of – gimbal system that has LIDAR and it has all kinds of follow focus and it's got just, it's it's an incredible all-in-one kit. And it's a pretty big, heavy kit. Like it, it's, a, you know, when you pick it up it, and there's lots of ways people figure out how to support it, it's good for single shots. Doing something over a long period of time can be pretty uh, arduous. Uh, and so what what they have there is they took the, the basically the optical block of that system and the, and the, and the stabilizer and they, they allow you to separate it and build a cable that will go between the two. Um, so it's a connector to it. Now we've seen this, the 950 that I have right there, the Sony 950 was one of the first cameras to do that where you could pull the optical block out of it and put it, and what we did is we used that to put it on a motion control arm so that you didn't have the weight of the camera on the motion control arm and you could just put the, the head there with the lens. Um, most of the Cine Altas ever since then, that's, that was 20 years ago or more than 20 years ago, all the Cine Altas since then have had that optical block removal. A lot of cameras just moved down to being basically the optical block. If you look at a red um, camera, a lot of those are just the optical block as it is. So what this does is it takes that, all the machinery, the heavy stuff that it's using, and it lets you separate that out and then just have the stabilized head with it. It's it's exciting. <laughs> I really want a 4D. I, I, I don't, I don't, I can't, I don't, I don't have a job that would pay for it yet, but, but it is, it, it's an amazing looking camera system. Uh, if, if you really want to see a great one of the 40, of the Ronin 40, check out Corridor Digital. Um, they did a, they did a review where they really pushed it through its paces a couple, maybe a year ago or a year and a half ago. And it's a really great breakdown of, of what it can and can't do. And then just take that 
and realize you can separate that head from the body. Um, and so if you watch the Corridor Digital one and then you watch some of the reviews that are of this piece, you'll fully understand what's possible. Let's move to the next question. Next question is from Paul, Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, I watched a YouTube video about a guy creating websites with ChatGPT and MidJourney, and they were pretty fantastic looking with great copy and nav. I literally, it literally wrote the code. What will it take to start using this? And we're going to start with John Preto here. John? This is an interesting story because Microsoft's been working with OpenAI for five years now, back starting in 2018. Their first pod product was called Copilot, which is what they did is they built their model based upon GitHub. So all of the code in GitHub was was scraped and put into the model. And, and that product now is built into VS Code. VS Code is the lightweight IDE from Microsoft that most of the coders are using these days. And the nice thing about that is you just write it what you want it to do in the comment sections of your code, and it will write all the code for you. Or you can write it directly in in uh, in regular open AI. It will generate the code. It's easier to do it in VS Code. Uh, and that, that product was called Codex, and now it's called Copilot. But that was their first commercial product. Uh, they're currently getting sued by class action for all the code that they borrowed from, from GitHub. But super easy to do. John Snyder. Yeah, since we've been um, doing the show, I've been having ChatGPT try to make revisions on a website. I don't know very much about coding websites, and I was able to create a portfolio website that has that's responsive and has six images that, when laid out a certain size, show it in rows of three, and a different size shows it as a single column. Um, it's pretty interesting. It does at some point it, it realized that I was just changing the styles and just started just giving me updated CSS, which um, it's interesting that it figured out what I was trying to do and the correct parts to correct. What you want to do when you're working with ChatGPT is be highly specific and structured in your prompts. I really recommend having a persona saying, you are this, giving it a task, I want you to do this, and then specific instructions by doing that. Uh, the more specific you can get, the better, and you should always need to verify everything and be extra cautious when it comes to URLs. ChatGPT is terrible at URLs. John, that's interesting. So you, you, you're giving chat GPT kind of a characterization, then you're talking to that characterization, and that's actually helping you clarify your prompts? Yeah, because chat GPT is searching the entire internet, basically. And you, if you want specific results, you need to give it a specific boundary that you want it to stay within. Otherwise, you'll just get that generic chat GPT style that most people get. That's an interesting uh, attack, though, to, to make it personable and like you're talking to a person rather than you're just trying to formulate ideas to throw at it. That's fascinating. All right, let's go to the next question. Oops, you're muted. No, sorry, I just had a technical issue. Uh, next question is from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, how do you determine and measure the correct voltage, amperage, and wattage for charging different phones, Android phones, tap, tablets, and laptops? John Preto's going to help us out. John? If you watch Lewis Rossman on YouTube or the other guy, Northridge uh, Fix out of California, they both use the Maker Hawk USB meter, which, which plugs into the laptop, and then you plug the power supply into that unit. Maker, MakerHawk doesn't make that one for the iPhone, but there's third-party companies in Amazon that makes this unit. It's super helpful uh, for troubleshooting, uh, and they're cheap. They're like $20. I, I haven't bought that one, uh, but it's $20 on Amazon. 
All right. That gives you some solutions. And don't forget, as we mentioned before, this is a great time to put questions in. We have a little room before the top of the hour, so make sure you do that and make sure that you vote on said questions so that we give more, the most time to the ones that have the most votes. That's the nature of what we do here. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from David Paskin in Flo Miami, Florida. And David asks, has anyone used Video Ninja? What are the pros and cons? Guy Cochran's going to help us, Guy. Yeah, we were using it for a few months on Tony Mobley's show. And this is the benefit of having a show like that where in case of failure, it's, there's not a whole lot of uh, high stakes. Uh, so we, we had some issues with it. Uh, that was a few months ago. We since moved over to Zoom Rooms. Uh, the benefit at the time was the isolated audio. This was before Zoom uh, Rooms did isolated audio. And also you could adjust the bit rate and crank it up. For those of you who don't know what the heck we're talking about, it's basically a weight on the far end. So you input through a browser, so your camera joins and your audio joins in a browser like Chrome. And now on the other side, you could open up that URL and you have the image. So in a program like OBS or um, vMix, you can say add browser input and that video will appear. And it looks really nice. Uh, the bummer is that since it is free, it peer-to-peer -peer in WebRTC, um, there's not a lot of people working on it that have a lot at stake as far as monetary uh, so this is where something like Stream Voodoo, where you pay for that and you get more stability and better quality. You can go 4K. Uh, really, you could crank that bit rate up on on that. So those are some of the some of my thoughts on it. Alexander, guys, thoughts are great. I my experience has been very mixed, and I I keep coming back to it every six months, and it does keep getting better. I just found it too fiddly. You know, I I was looking for a free solution just because I do so few remote. Uh, interviews. Uh, I was I resisted for a long time paying for Zoom, and I just ended up paying for a Zoom Pro account because it was just much easier and more reliable overall. I had seen David Paskin raise his finger up, and now he's weighed in. David, yeah, no, I was when when Guy said there's you know not a lot of people working on it. There's one guy working on it named Steve, um, and so he does he does that I know of. He does video.ninja, he does uh, socialstream.ninja, and you're right, he does them all for free. And you know he it's kind of his passion project. Um, uh, that this is all great information to know. Thank you. Excellent. Let's move to the next question. Next question is from Steve Podmore in London, and Steve asks, is there a video which explains the tech and how you create and produce office hours, and indeed your cookery chutney episode? Uh, amazing production level, fully supportive of the content. Well, there's not only a uh, thing that, there's a person who can explain it, which is Alex Lindsay, who has done that. So we, we're Alex. actually going to we're going to try to bring everybody on. Uh, we're we're, we're going to figure out a time to get, uh, schedule everybody to come back on and talk a little bit about how Office Hours is running today because it changes almost every week. Uh, there's an incredible team on the back end, a dev, a dev team, and and it's, it's long overdue to bring them back in. I think we're just working on a bunch of things right now. I think we want to finish before we bring the team back on. But incredible team on the back end that is constantly making things better from all over the world and working out things. And it's not just that Office Hours is getting built uh, by this team. It's that we're pushing the envelope so far that we have to work with all the manufacturers of all the software to get things fixed. You know, so so we're we're way out on the bleeding edge of what's what what's possible. And what that requires is us to work, you know, to coordinate with Trocatronics and Zoom and Universe and all the com all the things and even uh, to some degree, uh, even some of the platforms uh, to to figure this stuff out. 
um, and figure out how to make this work the best. You'll see us today, we're testing HDR. There's almost nobody doing HDR and we'll be doing it every day relatively soon, but we're trying to work out some of the issues that are related to doing HDR to, uh, you know, out to YouTube. Uh, where you'll, if you watch the HDR stream on an OTT box, you'll, you'll see us experimenting with 5.1. So this team is really pushing this outer edge and really figuring out what's possible. Um, there is the best way to learn how it works right now is to volunteer. <laughs> so volunteer for the team, take on a TD position, take on a, that is, it's the best way to learn anything in my opinion. You can watch a video about it, but really the thing to do is to jump into it um, and take on some of the roles uh, and not just once, but a couple times, you know, and, and, and you'll learn how it works. Um, the stuff is all available. We show everybody how to do it. We don't, we're not trying to hide anything. Uh, we want people to take what we're doing and think about how they would do it on their own using whatever software or hardware. We have a way that we've decided to do it. Um, eventually, I think that there's somewhere in the future that this will all be, so, you know, this will be all software in the cloud. <laughs> you know, like, like we won't, you know, right now we're doing it with all very complicated hardware and we're cobbling together lots of uh, lots of pieces of software. What we're trying to do is we're taking what we have right now and building kind of a, you know, a prototype, you know, for a different kind of show. And and I and so we we know that, that that's what's happening. And I think that we're creating a new kind of content, you know, where you have a bunch of a bunch of uh, experts that if you can get a bunch of them together and have them just answer questions, I think it's really compelling content. And I think a lot of people learn a lot from it. Um, and and so we're trying to figure out what that looks like. There's almost nothing here that you've seen that almost anybody else has ever done. I mean, if you look at the number of people in just in this panel, the panel that we do every day, and think about how many times have you seen that many people on a stage talking in unison <laughs> and had it work? Um, yeah, not, not very often. So so that's the thing that we're, we're trying to figure out. Good. Oh, David Paskin has a thought, David. Yeah, and Steve, the production quality is incredibly high. I uh, Everything that I currently do, I've learned from office hours. And what I'm doing is one one thousandth, if not one one millionth of the level that office hours itself is at. And so uh, my, my recommendation would be don't aim for office hours quality. Learn, take from it, learn from it, build your own experience, your own quality. And uh, it, it, there's, there's nothing that office hours can't help us do better. Yeah, amen to all of that. Alex, you had another last thought? Yeah, and the goal is not that everyone will build it exactly the way we do it. It's just that everyone, exactly as David uh, outlined, is that people will learn from the things that we're doing. Um, we're trying to do things that are, we're trying to stop, constantly be cutting that front edge of, you know, and opening up that that canopy, you know, like so that, that, that roads can be built in front of it. And so we're at a different commitment. We're not saying that every show should look like this, uh, but we are trying to uh, figure out how to produce that perfect show and constantly trying to solve a problem that is unsolvable. Absolutely. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, I've read in technical specifications for arenas and stadiums that they have specific space for trailers and cabling if a show is touring generators. Wouldn't most venues have a company switch uh, and, and company power hookups for a touring show? Yeah, there are a lot of uh, touring acts at a lot of different levels doing a lot of different things. It is possible, uh, but also remember, there's a lot of money on the line for these shows. So the fact that there is shore power 
and that the company may be bringing in generators, they're not mutually exclusive. Sometimes you get problems. I was in uh, a huge auditorium once and somebody had a transformer in the neighborhood and the power went out. They would have had to refund all those ticket things if they hadn't had an alternative source of power able to be brought into the system so the show could go on. Uh, I have one other story, but let's let Alex weigh in on this before. In today's shows, with the amount of AV, the amount of lighting, the amount of all, a lot of things that are happening in, in an arena or a stadium, the stadium and arena do not maintain enough power to do all of those things. It would be too expensive for them to do it because it would only be, you know, they, they have something going on every day. So if you think about like an arena, you take an arena, let's say the, the Golden One Center in Sacramento, they have three days a week that they're doing basketball games throughout the winter. The other days, <laughs> they're doing rodeos and they're doing concerts and they're doing all kinds of other things. Can they manage the the day-to-day -day stuff, the basketball games? Absolutely. That's all built into it. But if you come in with a big LED wall and a bunch of cameras and 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 lasers and all kinds of other things, they're not they're not built to manage that because they're not doing that often enough to make it worth it. Um, so it's it's easier for them to allow you to bring in your cat um, generators and so on and so forth to power it up. But it's really common to augment short, getting sh what we call it's not really called company power. We typically call it shore power. But getting shore power, there's usually you know a couple hundred amps that are available. You know, 400 amps, uh, you know, um, three phase or something like that to to do it. But they're not. And that's enough to run a basic broadcast truck and a couple other things. But it's not enough to run a full. Kiss concert you know, or something like that that comes in. They have to bring their own power. Speaking of that, I'm going to take you back to the 1970s. I was working in radio. I got comps to see Pink Floyd on their Dark Side of the Moon tour. They were in this venue, which is the ASU Activity Center. So not a small thing, and you would expect significant power. Uh, as we got closer to show date, it turns out they had to delay the concert. Why? Because they didn't have enough power in the building, and they had to run cabling from, and I'll go back to the picture, the lighting grid at the Sun Devil Stadium in order to bring in enough power to run the Dark Side of the Moon show. It was an amazing concert. I can see why they needed all that power, but Alex is exactly right. Uh, you can easily exceed even a large facility's capacity, so a touring show will understand that and have everything they need so they don't have to refund those tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars for that crowd. Next question. Next question is from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, what countries lead in AI? Let's start with John Preto. So <clears throat> interestingly enough, DeepMind is out of the UK. Stability, which is stable diffusion, uh, is also out of the UK. The US, obviously, most of the research is done here in the US. China and Russia, those four countries are leading the world right now. There you go. Uh, Jesse Kester. I just want to push back a little bit on this question. I feel like you're trying to enter the right building, but through the wrong door. Um, what concepts are leading in AI? And when I say concepts, I mean what languages are going to reveal themselves to be the most powerful in this uh, in this environment? And those will be the ones that are most uh, published, mo that have the most written representation. And there are other concepts as well, but that's just a, a little pushback on the question. David Paskin, thoughts? I just wanted to throw out that I had not been on chat GPT for a while and I jumped back on yesterday and boy, has it gotten smarter uh, and a little, um, has a little bit of an attitude. I, I asked, a, I put a prompt in, it gave me an answer. I put the same prompt in and it essentially said, I just told you the answer to that. 
whoa, whoa, AI with attitude. Uh, I'm going to wait for my first response of forget about it. You are wasting my time. You're wasting (laughs) my time. Uh, Interesting answers. Let's move to the next question. Next question is from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. And Kenny asks, uh, we learned months ago from Office Hours that many outdoor nighttime scenes for film and video are actually shot during the day. How is this best accomplished? Are there tricks in post to give a nighttime look? Ah, shooting day for night, Alex. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, obviously, the overall values of the of the image, but also, you know, the reds and the blues. You bring a lot of times you bring the blues up, you bring the reds down. Um, those are some of the things that you make those those conversions relatively quickly, uh, and and that helps, uh, you know, that helps turn it. It it is pretty mathematical if you look at um, a lot of people now that sensors are getting better are actually shooting at night and it does look a lot better like i will say that shooting at shooting at night you know with you know in at night you know for a night shot is way better than shooting during the day to do that it always has this kind of fake look once you know what it looks like but i will say that you can get into things where at least dark evening there was a shot uh, from uh, star wars it was it was funny because it was there was a shot in star wars where darth maul is coming out of Episode one, if you watch this shot, and he's he's coming out of his ship that had just landed outside of Mos Eisley. And um, there's a shot, and we shot, you know, I didn't shoot it. Somebody shot it during the day. <laughs> I remember the artist I will, will rem- who made Nameless was like, there's no way I can make this look like a n- night shot. Like, this is not going to work. He's sitting in After Effects, and John Knoll walks over and just goes, oh, you can totally do that. And he just goes, rip, rip, rip. he doesn't even experiment. <laughs> like, he just moves the red and green and blue sh- sliders over, and it's a... Night shot, and and um, and as John looked away, that artist just went command us. <laughs> you know, it's just like I'm going to save that. I have no idea what he just did to that image, um, but so it is. It's a pretty mathematical. But it was one of my. It was one of those moments that if I ever make a movie about Star Wars, that would be in it. it but it's it's very very quick. You can just change the channels and it'll it'll look like a night shot. Fenwick, comment. The real the real bigger issue can be seen painfully in old like 70s era TV shows because they're clearly shooting. So so listen, it's so bad. So they're clearly shooting like out in the hills above Hollywood somewhere. And what you see, it'll look dark. The color hues will be, you know, jacked up a little bit. Like Alex just said, but look at all the shadows in the background. Like the yeah. trees are clearly throwing giant midday shadows. It's, it's and the moon. It's the moon, Fenway. It really, it really is amazing with the cameras of today that, like, yeah. Yeah, just go out and shoot at night. What was the, what was the? Uh, it was a uh, Tom Cruise movie, uh, Collateral Damage, I think it was, mm-hmm. yeah, where they shot it all like super gorilla and very. It was very yeah, grainy back then. If you look at it, it's a really grainy film because they were shooting on film. Yeah. Um, but but nowadays, I mean, these sensors are getting so good uh, that it, that you can really you really can't shoot at night. Jesse Kester, in defense of day for night, the the nighttime sequence in Fury Road is gorgeous. Okay, so it can be done, but it, yeah, the, the the cinematographers who work at that level understand how, how to do it, and it's a it's a pretty well known process. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from uh, Jack uh, Rupel, uh, uh, R- R- Rupel um, in Breckenridge, Colorado. Since audio is so important in content creation, do any of you have specific storyboards for uh, production of spatial audio? Alex, you had a hand raised on this? Not really. Uh, we don't really have a, a way that we do that. Um, I, I think right now we still think about when the storyboards, we think visually about what we're doing. 
a lot of times if you're when you're doing that shot you're bringing people onto the set that are going to pay attention to those things so if you know that you have to capture some stuff spatially you're going to have someone paying attention to what they're grabbing a lot of spatial for film is all done in effects so these are these are fully this is you know in the united states when they, which is where a lot of spatial gets done is is the higher end films um, the more expensive films in in europe and the united states and a handful in india uh, they but the, most of your what you hear in spatial for a film is really done in uh, foley, in effects, in mixing, in those types of things. It's not usually captured on set, um, and and a lot of audio on set isn't even used. Um, but definitely, there's so much going on on a set that capturing for spatial. I mean, they might capture some stuff for reference, but capturing for spatial um, on the set would be very very hard. I've never, it might get, it might be done. I've never seen it actually done. I mean, generally we're just happy to get the mic. We're happy to get the people talking. Next question. Next question is from Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. And Eric asks, part of the spatial audio strategy seems to employ greater channel separation and delays for enhanced clarity. Does that provide a value add for accessibility applications or is accessibility mostly about captions? And Alex has an opinion. You know, we're talking a lot about this, actually, um, for some things. We, we, we're thinking about how do we use this for accessibility. And one of the things you get into uh, when you're doing dubbing, so this is, this is accessibility as it relates to language, but it could also be other things. But one of the things we're, we're, when you have dubbing, the problem is if you overdub the person who is actually talking, you don't get to hear them. You don't get to hear their expression. You don't get to hear what they, what they felt when they talked about it. And so one of the things that we've started to do some research on is the idea of putting the dub in one of the surround speakers. So so you have you you basically have the the translator in the in the in your left, you know, surround right or surround left kind of whispering in your ear. <laughs> you know, like they're like this is what he's talking. This is what he's saying. And uh, we got the idea actually where we I was doing a job in the uh in the synod with the with, uh, with the Pope, and and they, he has a person. That the Pope has someone sitting next to him, like whispering Spanish into his ear the whole time. And I was like, "What if we did that with surround?" <laughs> so so, um, so anyway, so we're doing some experimentation with that. It'll be interesting to see uh, if uh, how that how that actually works. But stay tuned. There you go. Next question. Our next question is from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, discuss how Video Pencil handles media and how it pulls from your uh, video, photo video library on an iPad. And David Pascon's going to help us. David? Sure. We're going to get a little bit of the infinity here, but this is Video Oh, look, we didn't. That's probably because it's frozen. So this is Video Pencil on the iPad. Up at the top left, you've got a media button. Uh, and uh, if you click on Pick from Photos, you can grab a photo, bring it in, zoom in, out. You can also uh, X that out, come back, pick from files. You can choose any files here from iCloud or anything that's on your iPad or from Drive. Um, it's 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 pretty nice. And then it'll it'll of course it'll save recents right here. So if I bring this guy back in, and then I wanted to uh, you know draw on top of it, it would allow me to, which is really convenient. That's a cute dog. All right. Anyway, that's beside the point. Let's uh, thank you, David. Great explanation. Hope that gave you everything you wanted, Paul. Let's move to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, there are rumors that Apple will be introducing a 15-inch MacBook Air. If you wanted a laptop that can handle more complex production tasks while still being portable and usable on public transport, would you get a 15-inch uh, MacBook Air or a 14-inch MacBook Pro? John Prado. This is a good question, and uh, 
and Nigel and I talk about the overlap in Apple's product lineup right now. Uh, this this new 15 inch uh, MacBook Air is getting good reviews in the press right now. It'd be a perfect upgrade for my wife from her 13 Intel, but it won't fit in her backpack. Oh dear! Uh, and then the fashion part of that is important. Chris Fenwick, uh, Douglas, you just bought a computer. Stop shopping. Ser- <laughs> no, no, seriously. This, I, if I can accomplish one thing here, Alex, in office hours, I, I implore people to shop less, create more. We have amazing tools. Douglas, you just bought a computer. You walked us through it for like several weeks. Like, what if I got this thing or, or should I get this much RAM or this? Go make your music. Stop shopping. Everybody, when you buy a new thing, when you buy a new car, stop driving through auto row. Like, just stop. Buy less, create more. Guy Cochran. Well, if you need the tools, you need the tools. I don't know if he has one currently that's powerful enough to do what he wants to he do. He does. He just bought it. We know that. We've been he bought following a Mac Mini. him. He, he bought, yeah, he didn't buy a, a laptop yet. That's why he's asking. So uh, okay. The, I said correct. Yeah, go go get a computer. Ancient. Yeah. Go, go shopping. Uh, my recommendation would be to, if you need the ports, don't get a MacBook Air because you're you're suffering with just two. Um, so that, that hurts. Um, if you have uh, peripherals to plug in on the road and you don't want to have dongles hanging off, especially if you're in a precarious position where that might get snagged. Uh, the other thing is I've showed it in the, the chat and Discord, uh, the link to the 17-inch uh, perfect um, 4K monitor. And that thing plugged in is, it gives you amazing space on a small. So I have the 13-inch MacBook Pro previous, uh, it's like Intel days. And man, it's a nice package. So... I would take a look at that. And then you can always VPN into or use something like Jump uh, uh, Jump Connect to connect to your uh, big machine. So that's what I've been doing is I've been using Jump Connect to connect to my bigger machine, even though my my uh, MacBook's not as powerful as my new M2 Mac Mini. Jesse Caster? I'm going to pounce on that phrase, complex production tasks, and say that you should go for the Pro, not the Air, because as you get into uh, higher demand applications, uh, the heat dissipation really does make a difference between those those computers. I'm going to support what everybody said, including the fact that Guy gave you some practical things. But Chris also talked about what we sometimes call gear acquisition syndrome. It is possible, and I've seen a lot of people who have asked me for advice over the course of the years get into this process of paralysis by analysis. They, they're so focused on getting exactly the right thing in this complex thing that they don't pull the trigger and get the thing on their desk and start actually learning how to use it which is the toughest part of this. And so the faster you get something in there, the quicker you learn all the tricks of actually getting your work done and out in the field. And sometimes that's, to me at least, way more important than whether or not that processor is a couple of extra megahertz faster than the one before it. Uh, You're right to make sure that the machine you're going to get does all the things you need it to do right now as best you can. But the next one will be better, and the current one still will do a great job if you've made a wise decision initially. So get the decision made. Uh, Let's move on. Oh, it's time. We've uh, moved ourselves to the top of the hour here, which means that we are going to go into HDR realm. 
I think a lot of us on the panel have been both looking forward to and in great fear of the next hour. We're going to do a ruthless review of ourselves, but not as we normally appear in the coming office hours HDR realm, which means that you're probably going to see things exposed that none of us want you to see exposed. But that's okay. That'll be part of the fun of this. And I'm going to kind of uh, first call on Alex, but then I think we're already getting uh, – yeah, they're already putting into our our – process each person's shot. So we will go one by one through each panelist and uh, do a ruthless review of how we look in HDR. So Alex, you want to give us any more pre uh, what you're planning for this? Uh, basically, we're trying to figure out what looks good and what doesn't look good in HDR. Now I posted, this is HDR specific to uh, to YouTube is what we're looking at right now. So to kind of tell you what the pipeline is right currently is that we are going um, through, uh, we're doing the whole show. It's still in SDR. The show itself then gets outputted through an FS HDR. And that, that FS HDR is, um, uh, the FS HDR then converts it from, it's just a standard curve conversion from the, uh, SDR to PQ. So this is the PQ curve. And then that is sent out of the FS HDR into a elemental UHD link, which is capable of 10-bit as well as um, the HDR upload. So it basically pushes um, that and it's, it's capable of 16 channels of audio or yeah, 16 channels of audio. So we're sending uh, 5.1 as well. So uh, you may or may not get audio on your, we're still playing with that. But we did put, if you're using an iPhone, an I, a newer iPhone and iPad, or if you have an HDR TV, you could open up the link that we put into the, um, into, the, into the panel chat and also into the event chat to look at what we're doing here and see what, what's there. So, um, and the goal, again, is to kind of error correct. It's going to be hard for us to move anything while we're doing it, but it's mostly for us to just look at it through HDR and say, well, what could we do better or what could we make look better, um, you know, in that environment. And so we'll just go from person because it's hard to tell because some things look fine in SDR and don't look good. And sometimes things look dark, you know, in Zoom and don't necessarily look dark, you know, coming out. So so I do think that generally a well-exposed image in SDR will look pretty good in, in HDR, but it can get a little overexposed at times if it clips. And we're, we're going to figure some of those things out. So we're going, you know, we'll we'll answer your questions and you know, kind of go back to your comments as well. So you can put comments or questions in um, to this. But what we're going to do is kind of go from person to person and just give uh, the person some feedback uh, related to that. So um, we'll start with, uh, and, and this may this will be really short. It won't take us very long to go through this panel. <laughs> so if you have questions about HDR, if you have questions about what we're doing, go ahead and throw those in. Otherwise, we'll have a short show. We'll have plenty. Of, time to do other things. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, so let's um, go ahead and uh, go to Jesse. Jesse actually raised his hand oh, for ahead, that discussion question, and he's go also ahead. first in line here. So go ahead, Jesse. Uh, my question is, after we get the, the ruthless review, will we have an opportunity to adjust settings on our, our pipeline and uh, get re-reviewed or is this yeah, one you can. And done? Yeah. If we have time, you know, we'll, we'll go through everybody relatively quickly and give them feedback and see, and if they have time to make some adjustments, that's great. It's hard to adjust live because you're 20 seconds behind. <laughs> so 20 to 30 seconds behind. So it's like, you're kind of, you know, jerking around. So we can give you some feedback on it, but you know, we're going to keep on doing this and we'll start doing it for sections every day soon. Um, I wanted to figure out a couple things on my end. It costs a lot more money to do this. 
Um, so I want to make sure that I'm I'm uh, I figure some stuff out on the back end before I start turning it on. But what we're going to start doing is typically turning it on in the pre-show. So um, we'll post it in there. So during the pre-show, I'm going to turn it on, and then I'm going to turn it off before the show itself. And that's mostly because I I don't want to leave it on for two hours. We don't need to. We we get all the information we need um, before the show. So um, we'll do it. At, at, we're going to start broadcasting between six thirty and probably six fifty or six fifty five Pacific Standard Time. So not the pre pre show where we actually talk about the questions, but when we're doing mic checks is a great time because we're locked on one person at a time. So there'll be a place to re refer back to it. So it'll be less about correcting in in real time and more about looking at it each day. And saying, oh, I could do a little bit of this or I could do a little bit of that to make the adjustment. So let's go ahead and go to Jesse. Um, I saw Jesse there go by in a second. And again, for those of you who can watch it, take a look at it. I actually think Jesse looks pretty good. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know if we um uh the uh he uh the lights in the back look really nice. Um the gradient actually looks better than I expected. A lot of times gradients, because we're stretching it out. Um, they, they sometimes look really posterized, uh, because we're going to that, but I don't see much of that in the, in, at least in what I'm looking at there. Um, it is, uh, you definitely have kind of a more of a, a, a directional lighting, which is, uh, is good there. The, um, but I think that actually it is, uh, I don't know from a lighting perspective, I don't know how much I would change. I think that the skin tones look good. I think that the, you know, the, you know, a lot of those bits and pieces look good. I, I think it's a pretty good, so for those of you looking at it there, um, this is a pretty good set of exposure. Um, again, the the lights and things bright back there do look nice. <laughs> they, on they look on nice my iPhone, year. his key is probably higher than I would normally set it at. His key is maybe a stop, maybe a stop and a half brighter than if I was looking I, at this as a shot. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd keep it there mostly because in HDR, I want to extend that a little bit. You know, it snaps oh, okay. a little bit because of that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't pull back on that. I think it looks, I think it looks nice. Um, yeah, I, I think Jesse looks great. So I think we're Are on. you noticing that dark bubble around my head and is that expected? That's why I keep wiggling back and forth because I want to um, see that, that looks bubble like a falling. I, I'm not sure if it is. I'll do more testing to see yeah. if that's what it is. But the light's coming directly uh, from this side. Um, yeah. And there's no, there's no source that would put a shadow like that behind me. It doesn't look like a shadow to me. It looks like a compression. It could be yeah. compression. What it, here's what it could be, is that it is putting more. It's a really interesting thing that, that now I see it. Now I can't stop seeing it. I think you weren't moving. <laughs> Every time I glance down, I don't think you were moving that much. And now when you move back and forth, um, I can definitely see it there. Um, you, and now, you know, you can see a little bit of posterization there. And this is going to be the challenge that we have when we're using 8-bit highly compressed WebRTC to go up. So um, probably what's happening is it's it's putting a lot more, um, yeah, it's probably putting a lot more detail into your face and then throwing data away because it's a little darker. So one thing about, you know, a lot of compression is it's perceptual, you know, so they say, well, it got darker, you're probably not going to pay attention to it, so we're going to throw it away. And probably what's happening there is that it's throwing that away and then we're stretching it a lot outside of it, the gamut that it was designed for. So um, you may, what you may want to try to do is add another light behind you just to, you know, to fill that in a little bit more and see if it doesn't get into an area of, of brightness that, uh, that, that makes that go away. Yeah, go ahead, John. Should Sorry. he be wearing a different color shirt than his background, Alex? In general, I'd recommend a, some contrast there. You know, definitely. I mean, that's a in a more general thing. Uh, having a slightly different color shirt would would make a difference. But I don't think that it's the end of the world in, in what we're doing. But I but I do think a, a slightly slightly different color shirt 
Jesse, what are you using for those little uh, highlights in the background there? Those are um, LED strips that we have built into. They're they're basically footlights um, okay. on little dot strips. Wow, they look good. I can't believe that those are just little dots. Anyway, it, it looks nice. It looks nice. Um, all right, let's uh, let's go to the let's go to uh, Bill. Here we go. Uh, let's see how long it takes to switch to me if I talk. Hopefully, <laughs> it will come to me at some point. It'll slowly arrive. Uh, It'll slowly uh, arrive. I'll yeah, just keep so. talking until the system in the back end understands that it's time for me. Uh, maybe they're patching things differently. I'm still seeing Jesse, but I'm going to yeah, keep no, talking. It takes, it, no, it's not them. It's, oh, it's, it's no, yeah. This is on the show. In, Bill's not in the program. Yeah. Yeah. Bill's right. not in the program. He's got to be I think I might be pinned see. right now. Um, but still. Oh, wait. I see a red hey. There we go. There, there we, we go. go. Okay. So, now start your 20 second. 20 yeah, exactly. Second so, so Bill, and, and um, Bill, you're using a 6K. Is that right? That's right. Blackmagic 6K. Jesse, were you using a 6K as well? Yeah, I'm on a Blackmagic 6K. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's, it's still, uh, but yeah, I think that it, it turned out Jesse's looks really nice there. Um, and we're just waiting. We're going to just keep tapping. I know. So I'm waiting Bill. for it to show up in, on my phone. Um, I think it looks pretty good. There's something about in general about the correction of your camera. Are you, are you using video extended video or regular, uh, video as a LUT or what, what LUT or how are you LUTing? I don't think, uh, boy, I, I've used some of the controls there, but I don't think I have ever applied a LUT that I know of. Well, I think you want to try that. <laughs> okay. So, so what I would do is I would try to, yeah, it does have a kind of a feel that it is been just the film and you just pushed it really hard to get it to where it looks kind of normal. Um, okay. So, and I think that it shows up here a little bit more. It has kind of a painterly look to it um Ooh. that that is uh and, it, and it's had that way it, it just it's kind of hard hopefully it, rembrandt not picasso yeah exactly <laughs> i was i was thinking more van gogh um uh, okay. and so uh so anyway the um <laughs> you know you know uh, late artist humor <laughs> so no, anyway um Mark rothko no <laughs> none of the crazy so, people so anyway um try uh what i would try is to look and see if you're if you're passing the camera through a lot and if it is i'd put the put it into a video lot and see how that looks um you might end up with extended video to give you a little more edge um but but take a look at that uh, but, but can I we think set that, up an appointment? Is there possible to appointment? Yeah, we'll do some more hours. Yeah, we'll do some more labs. We can this. walk through all the settings and make sure everything's right. Yeah, let's look at the second half of next week. We'll do some labs um, to, or a lab where people can just jump in and we'll push it through the system. Uh, it's a little hard. I have to figure out how to route that because it's all in office hours. It's easiest to do it in office hours because the whole thing is routed, but we can definitely do that after I have a production on. It will be not be next week. It'll be the week after that because we have, we have a couple productions next week. Um, okay, let's let's go ahead to John. I'm a bad panelist. I didn't set up my real studio today. Oh, John, I'm cutting your pay in half <laughs> again? <laughs> again, I'm I, you know every time. Wow. So John is very bright. Yes, um, this is a Brio. Yeah, and it's uh, with no with no lights, zero light. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is you definitely pop out and, uh, and the monitors and everything else. I mean, it's just a very bright image because yeah. it's, and a lot of it has to do with, um, the windows behind you. Sometimes the windows work really well. Um, but it would, you know, jumping back and forth, I think it's a, it's a, I mean, it's not a bad image. It, 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 it looks pretty good. It's just that it's, it's a, uh, but it's also not a good image. Chris has just put ND, yeah. ND filters on my windows. Yeah. The ND filters on your windows would look great. Like it would, it would definitely, cause right now they're just a big solid white. So, um, but, uh, 
Yeah, but it definitely, you can see how HDR can make a difference. And this is where I think you're going to start seeing it when we go out with a, with a, with a, a backpack, you know, with a live view or whatever, wandering around, you're going to see a, um, a, a big difference in how things look when we, when we look at it in HDR. How's the ViewSonic bird look? On Your HDR? bird looks better than you do, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. And keep on remembering to ask questions and to uh, make any comments that you want to make while we go through this, because we'll get to the other side of this. And we'll talk a little bit more about it. And again, for it to go the whole time, we'll probably take some questions. Uh, let's go to Harshid. And Harshid, did you have something to say while you were uh, while we nope, were jumping to Nope, I just did you? that for a super source. Oh, okay, okay, got it. Um, yeah, so so Harsh, we have Harshid in the in the in the shot here, and um, I think that I think it's I, I think it's going to look pretty good. Um, there we go. The it looks good. You probably could get away with a little more key light to separate you out a little bit. Um, but overall, I think that it it is uh, um, it's still popping. It looks quite you know nice. It's, there's nothing about it that jumps out. Um, you might be able to get a, again just a touch more key light in there to bring you out out a little bit um, from from the background. But but I think overall it looks it looks good. It looks good. I guess one comment would be uh, Mickey. If you took that note down, uh, we need more key light, Mickey. <laughs> but just a little, just a little, um, it, it, like it, like ten percent. Uh, next question. Our next next uh, next victim. Oh, it's you, Alex. Oh, here I am. Okay, here we go. And um, I think that I'm going to. I was playing with something that I think I don't think is. Well, you'll see me change it, which is going to be interesting to see how this looks. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and change it. I turned my gamma up a lot, and I'm going to turn it down back to zero and you'll see the adjustment happen while I'm on air and we'll see what that what that actually looks like there um, so while I'm uh, there we am so what was the um, theory behind pushing the gamma earlier um, I, I you know my monitor that I made my main monitor that I look at is a little dark and I and I realized that I was I'm that it all looks dark to me because I'm so used to looking at so much HDR that um, so you can see me bring it down oh I think I still like it See how I look a little bit more glassy now than I did before? So I'm going to bring it back up again so you can see it. So look at look at me now. Uh, look at me now. Uh, and then and look at how um, you see a lot more of my the highlights in my in my uh, uh, in my head, and you see and it feels a little bit more oily. Now watch what what happens when I bring up my my gamma here. So this will take 20 seconds, but you'll see it. Um, I'll wave because that means I was <laughs> it's happened right after I did that. And I think that you're going to find that it, it may even out. Now, may, maybe I lost a little too much um, black there, but yeah, you can see me wiping my head. So here, it's going to happen here in a second. Um, and uh, so you'll see me pull up my midtones here. There's maybe too much. So did you see that gamma, that gamma change? Yeah, I did. I think the thing that bothers me, I'm guessing... I don't know. I'm guessing that shirt is black that you're wearing. It is. The microphone certainly is black, and it looks milky and not punchy. Like I, I, okay, I so like. I'm going to bring my blacks down. Yeah. I'm going to bring my highlights down a little bit too, and I'm going to bring the mid tone down just a little bit. Let's see what happens here. So I've brought, I've crushed my blacks a little bit crushed them i've i've crushed the highs a little i've just brought down my highlights just a little bit 
but I've also moved my gamma down just a little um, in that in that process there. So you're going to see that happen here in a couple seconds. Yeah. There's the black. Um, there's the white, and there's the. It's so weird to watch it 20 seconds later. Right. So now you can see it. Now I push those blacks down. Um, yeah. Maybe a little too much. No, I don't probably, think so. I think I it looks it. pretty good. That's where I'd. That's where I'd put it. Bring it up. The blacks are a little crushed there. Hold on. I can see the the blacks are starting to posterize. Is the problem there? Um, but I'm, I'm bringing those up just a touch, and then I'm going to. My, I think my midtones look okay there. Um, and uh, bring this. Out of curiosity, on the far right of camera right of your set piece back there, mm -hmm. it is brighter than the center and the left. Why is that? At the window. <laughs> oh really? It's a, it's a practical window it's that changes throughout the day. That, oh yeah, yeah. What exp I, what exposure do you have? You so have a bad. western exposure, southern. Oh, I was, it's that's northern, but it still gets super bright. And and then yeah. there's this window that I haven't fixed yet that is there. But I think this is um, now. So what's funny is in Zoom when I look up at it, it looks horrible. Like it 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 definitely does not look good. I don't know what it looks like in the SDR version that goes out, but this is the challenge that we're kind of dealing with. I think this is probably the best looking as far as the HDR output, but I don't know on a daily basis whether it's the best looking on a regular SDR output. And so if you're watching this show later, you may see that we're correcting for something that may or may not be the best solution. So so that's something to kind of kind of consider as well. Um, all right, well, there, there's, um, and, and you know, it feels a little like, it also feels like it might be just a little bit saturated. I did bump the saturation a little bit in the past. And so if I pull that back, I'm gonna pull that back to, to center. Um, on that, so we'll wait for twenty seconds there, and then we'll we'll go back to. Uh, um, so you'll see me, you know, wave, so I know that I've already been there. Um, so, but that's so. In uh, looking at the SDR version that I had there, oh, and we've already jumped to. Uh, so we won't we won't look at me me doing that right now. <laughs> um, all right, so let's go ahead and go to John here, um, and uh, so so John is up. Um, I'm always surprised at how how good it actually looks like it's actually working pretty well um i think that there's something what is the bright thing that's kind of hanging in your bookshelf is that it's a it's a little light light bulb there okay. it's a floating light bulb i was hoping it would come out better than it actually does you can just see the filament yeah this is where if we had actual hdr delivery this would look better you know so what right now what's happening is it's getting it's sdr it's then compressed and it's sent over and then it's uncompressed and then it's and then it's scaled up and what you end up with is just a, a little uh a little dot that's there um i think that but again i think that it i think overall it it looks pretty good uh, you probably could get away with a little bit more key light if you wanted to but i think it it looks fine and there's nothing that looks too dark or or anything else there as far as that goes so it's um yeah i used to have the the purple and it was way bright in the hdr yeah. and I, I kind of got lost in it so i was trying this blue i've been trying this blue instead yeah no, absolutely let's go to the next one guy guy i will admit that guy always looks really good in hdr whatever guy's doing generally <laughs> generally works uh, when i'm doing tests in the background i don't I, i'm always like oh guys shot now what what camera are you using guy this is a Zcam uh, E2C, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, it's and, about uh, a two thousand uh, dollar Micro Four Thirds camera, and it does have uh, it does have some ability to do HDR, but I'm not I'm not enabling anything right now. I mean, it's just a regular yeah. uh, output. No, I think it looks great. Um, 
the blue is a lot bluer. You know, that's typically the thing. And, and one of the things that you see here is the blue light that you have over your shoulder, the, the big blue light um, is in, it's peaking. So you can see it flatten out right around the, right around the, um, where the painting is. It, it probably did it. We, we, we don't see it in SDR. It probably did it in SDR. It probably hit the, it, not the whole, not all of the exposure, but the, I bet you, if you look at your, um, it's not you, it's the, it's the, yeah, it's that background there. But I bet you that if you open up scopes, um, on your image, you will see the blue channel is, is going over a hundred. Like it's just, it's clipping just the blue channel. There it is. Yep. You can see it. So that's, that's why that blue is flattening out. in that one area is that the, the blue, that those blue, that blue, it's not clipping, clipping like a white clip. It's just the one channel clipping and it's kind of flattening out. So I might try to pull that, that light back just a little bit. And because it, it's, the problem with the HDR is that it's it's much more noticeable because it probably looks it looks fine in SDR, um, and uh, and but what happens immediately is is that the HDR is stretching everything out. So suddenly things that were minor in SDR look look more. You see them a lot more in HDR, but otherwise I think it looks great. I feel like you have more fill in the, in there in the background than you had before. Is that did you do you have more lighting back there now? As far as um, bringing up just the ambient mm -hmm. level of the, yeah, there is because, uh, well, there's daylight creeping in right okay. now. And then um, I've been moving around my key light a little bit. But I mean, do you notice it if I turn off the key light? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that the, uh, it, it did look a little better without as much ambient light in the room in the past. Um, just because it separated you out more, you don't Let want to talk to God about that. Hey, yeah, exactly. Can you turn it down over there a little bit. Get the get the God, the, the gaffer in the sky to you know back up a little bit. Um, so, but uh, anyway, yeah. So I think, but otherwise, it looks great. It looks great. Um, let's go to the, let's go to uh, Alexander Knight. And in the past, when we've done tests, Alexander has also looked really good. Oh, I know that when I because a lot of times I'm in the background, kind of throwing these things on. Um, and I do think that, yeah, guy, I'm, I'm 20 seconds behind, but I do think when you turn off that that key, um, the background, those especially the little lights that are hanging down, um, you know, pop out a lot more uh, with that. But again, it looks great in HDR, um, so it's it's good. The uh, here's Alexander. Alexander looks great. The, you know, it's funny that so what's interesting about that is that the lighting that Alexander has behind him, I think, really works. <laughs> it's it's like in, in HDR, it it is a uh, it's a it's a it, it's very pleasing as far as um and and so this is this is kind of why we want to do some of these tests is because we kind of have to figure out like why does John's not not pop out but Alexander's does um but his his lighting is not maybe it's just the brightness but his lighting is not um they're they are clipping at one end there but the the on air and the and the lights right behind his head. Um, I might try to bring down the, that little cluster that's a little brighter. Um, may could come down just a touch, you know, to to not not because um, it's clipping. But outside of that, I think it it pops really nicely. I'm I tend to go towards. I think this looks great. I tend to go towards um, uh, cooler colors behind me, obviously, <laughs> than 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 warmer colors. Mostly because it makes me it it it. it tends to be good for your skin you know like you tend to look better with you know not not being compared to a warm color um and so that's that's how i tend to kind of go down that path 
But I think overall, I think it, it looks great. And I think, again, what we're learning there from, from Alex's is that those, those lights, when they work, work really, really well. It's just a matter of figuring that, figuring that out. And that's what we're trying to, that's one of the reasons we're doing these ruthless reviews and why we're going to keep on doing these tests is to figure out, oh, what's nice about this? And what, what, what would you, what do we want to try to emulate? I don't want everybody to have lights behind them either. <laughs> like, we don't want to be all like all wearing a blue striped shirt, but, but we want to look at what things uh, might make a difference that, that we can kind of personalize. Go ahead, Alexander. Yeah. Which light did you say was clipping? Is it the Parkan that's kind of on top of the base trap that I have back there? Um, it is the, uh, it's the, the one that's in, in your frame, there's a cluster of them that is not, uh, not that bright and a cluster that's brighter. I don't know what that is, but that's, that's the one that is the brighter, smaller cluster over your shoulder, over your left shoulder is the one that is, um, that could probably come down just a touch, just a touch. And it would, it would not clip out. Now we're going to jump to Chris. Um, and, uh, we got Chris up here. Chris's looks good. It looks really good. We don't, I don't see a lot of posterization the way it, can you rock your head back and forth, Chris? We'll see if we get, you see the same thing. So I don't, so interesting. I do don't the Ray see, Charles. Yeah. Do the Ray Charles. Uh, the, I don't think that I don't see the same thing. So I do think that this is what we're learning is that Jesse's was a compression artifact with a darker background. Chris has a little bit more <coughs> light behind him. And as a result, we're not, it's, it's deeper. It's in the more of the center of the compression algorithm because the cor- compression is throwing away dark areas thinking you're not going to see them and then when we stretch them out you see them <laughs> you know so so i think that with with that kind of uh lighter slightly lighter background behind him you're getting into something where the compression algorithm considers it more important and doesn't throw it away um so i think that uh, yeah i wouldn't change anything there looks great you know you could you might be able to yeah no no <laughs> i wouldn't change it it's good it's good. Other than putting little Christmas lights back there. For no, I'm not going to do Christmas <laughs> lights because it. Uh, but uh, for the record, the lighting is a, a cheap, soft thing over there, like a roll-up, uh, a Elgato key light, which today is not being controlled by the co- computer because it didn't want to work, and then a couple of uh, Philips Hues is doing the ice blue in the background, yeah. and very side lit, which I know I realize sometimes. I think my eyes are either deep set or, you know, maybe, and they're pretty low, Mm -hmm. but sometimes my eyes don't get a lot of light. I will say, Alex, uh, I am continually thoroughly impressed with uh, the lighting of your glasses. You could do a whole class on how to light for glasses. <laughs> and and you should sell it for like seventy nine ninety five to every gaffer on in the. But it would only take like five minutes for me to sell how to do. Glasses. Well, then you need to be better at stretching that YouTube, stuff out. Video. Yeah. Like, let me talk really slower. Just put it in. <laughs> yeah, there's no filter on it right now. It's just ang- I mean, it really is just angle of incidence equals angle of reflection. I mean, that's the the, the only trick to. to yeah, but glasses. here's the thing, though you you move your head a fair amount, right. and it never. I never lose your eyes. I never lose your eyes. It's really like I wish I. Uh, it's really good. It's fantastic. Okay, well, thanks, thanks. I, I I don't know. I mean, it, I'm, I I fiddle with it a lot. Like it when I set it up, there's a lot of me sitting down looking at my glasses and then going back up. I mean, my glasses probably drive half of my lighting. So I I do agree that that's the issue. But the the problem is simple. It's 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 
the quality of whatever tools I have to fix it is the thing that usually is the thing that I have to worry about. You know, like right now I'm using the maker pipe stuff, but I didn't really use it the way it could be used. I couldn't, I ordered hinges. I couldn't find them. They're in some box. And so I kind of had to do it in kind of a weird way. And so it took a long time to do it. But normally if it's just swings, you can kind of figure that out relatively quickly. But yeah, so we'll, we'll maybe we'll do a lab at some point about glasses, glasses. All right, let's go ahead and... Uh, jump into the questions. Oh, that's me. <laughs> Sorry, first question. Next question is, I'll, I'll hand it back to, we'll hand it back to Bill here. Um, the first question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And he says, uh, Andy asks, can you describe the HDR live streaming signal chain? How do you maintain HDR? Thanks. And I think that's for you, Alex. So do you want yeah, to so take it through? I, I talked about it a little bit earlier, but what happens is, is that we're just getting standard dynamic range out of the panelists and that's going to go out. Now, what it does do is we, we, we're not showing that today, but what we do have is it goes right out of, so Zoom ISO delivers all of those to a router. And then we go directly out of that router into uh, four FSHDRs. And then those FSHDRs go out and into the switcher. So we actually, in the middle of this, have um, we actually have the ability to color correct each person. So that's the next step that we're kind of pushing through. We're pretty close now. But if we want to adjust things a little bit back and forth and move people around, we can actually do that in the FSHDRs. So, so that process is is um, already in in the pipeline now. But we're still organizing SDR there. Then we send the entire program of the of the switcher out to another FSHDR, and that one converts from um, that converts from a SDR to an HDR. So it. it it applies a PQ curve or a LUT that goes from SDR to HDR. And then I have a lot of controls. I have some black controls, black gamma gain. So lift gamma gain. I have uh, HDR amount. Um, I have a lot of other things that are all built into the color front um, solution inside of the FSHDR to do overall correction to everyone. Now, this isn't going to, this is not the place we want to be in the future. What we really want to do is convert the problem we really have is delineating what's actually happening in the in the ATEM. But we eventually what we want to do is get to a point where the ATEM is being delivered HDR, assuming that the ATEM stays in HDR. And so we would take all those people that are going through those FSHDRs and convert them all to HDR there. Um, then we would build an HDR show and then use an FSHDR to go back down to SDR where we can control the LUT and send that stream out to YouTube. Uh, if you look at this HDR link, which we put into the event chat and into the panel chat, in a regular monitor, we probably look a little overexposed. <laughs> so, so the, uh, um, so, so the, it's not the. That means that YouTube is not properly, you know, converting us from uh, from HDR to SDR, and that's something we're working on. So, right now, what we need to do is do our own SDR, and we may want to do our own SDR correct correct um, build either way. But that's what we're working on there is to get that correction back. Now, the advantage of doing all of it into the as HDR into the switcher is that when we have a third party, I mean, when we have something else, like we want to have a live camera through a live view or a live camera from our set or a live or playback, all of that could be living in HDR um, and played out to HDR. So we're not going from SDR to HDR. That, that could just be HDR content that we're playing out. And that had so it can it will look amazing. The goal is to have the panelists look good, um, good as good as we can make them with SDR, and then be able to have the output, um, you know, that we're, we're you know have the output of anything we put else we put in, 
um, that might be HDR content, whether, again, whether it's playback. And this gets back into the same thing with play at, with the audio, is that we could have audio going out at a, um, if we if we had audio in 5.1, uh, the whole show may be sitting going through the center speaker or maybe a little bit splayed out, but the 5.1 will sound amazing and go around us and we can experiment with things. So um, we're still working on all of those bits and pieces. Uh, next question. Go ahead. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> or do you want to flip? I'm Would sorry. it be easier I'm, since you're going to be not, answering a little bit? I'm not used to this. This is very complicated for me. <laughs> no, um, anyway, so, so I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll go. So Guy Cochran uh, asks, uh, besides the live view, what kind of encoder uh, could we push to HDR in into the OH system remotely? And uh, that we'll I, have to go to Alex for. I know. I might answer a couple of these. Um, so, uh, it, you know, what it needs to have primarily is 10-bit. So 10-bit is the big the big thing that we need to have. We can get away. We can figure out a way al- around a lot of other things, but we need more bits. And preferably, we want to be capturing at that. It doesn't have to be 444. Uh, people always ask that, but it, it's, it can be um, it it can be nicer in some cases to be 444 if it's if it's a lot of saturated colors. But otherwise, um, the 10-bit is the thing that's really important as far as a delivery um, output. Of course, we want to be able to, we may, what we're looking at also is do we want to convert from log to, to you know, because it might be easier for a lot of pipelines to use either HLG or log um, to to make those corrections. And so that that's another thing for us to kind of consider, um, you know, down that, you know, down that path. So I don't. I don't know of many. Um, the Streambox is another. Uh, I think it's a 12-bit delivery tool. So Streambox is is one way that we could be sending, uh, you know, HDR content uh, to to us. Uh, we haven't tested that heavily yet, but that's another way to do it. Um, and then, of course, a lot of you know camera systems that are local. But as far as remote camera systems, um, if we don't care about latency, the other thing is that we have the the Blackmagic, you know, UHD has the ability to do that 10-bit. Um, so we can actually pass it. Um, you know, pass that information to it. So that's that's another way we could do that, but we'll have latency, about five seconds of latency to get in there. So if you want to cut to something or show something or pass something through, that might work. Um, but there are pretty limited options right now to um, getting this um, getting this out right now. But that's the only way we can figure it out and push for more of it is to do it. It probably makes sense for us to swap. So let me read the next question and then you'll answer it. Uh, we're okay. moving to Andy Kokendorfer, VR Florida. Jesse's image looks awesome in HDR. Is a darker background better for HDR? Well, I think that we saw. I think that we saw that Jesse's image looks good, but that darker it was a little too dark, and and the compression started to throw stuff away. So so I think that um, maybe darker, a little darker, looks good with some contrast, but probably not a lot darker. And what happens is is that data is getting thrown away. I, I don't know. Gonna see, I think Jesse's going to move back and forth again here. And we're 20 seconds behind. I think he already did that. Um, but I, I see less of it now. Did you bring up the light a little bit there, Jesse? Yeah, you did. Yeah. So it's um, still see a little bit of it. There's a little bit of a compression shadow. It's really interesting that's going on back there. I still think that there might be a little bit of a shadow that's just being accentu- accentu- accentuated you know, in that process um, that we just don't see normally. But when we extend it, we see it. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Alexander Knight in Vancouver. What is the minimum investment required to have an HDR live stream versus pre-recorded and uploaded later to YouTube? Uh, it's just a matter of how you're going to deliver it to YouTube's in HDR. So you need something that's going to be able to do a. T- um, it has to be able to do the 10-bit compression. You need to be able to stream it um, via HLS. So you can't. We are streaming to YouTube on the using the HLS format rather than RTMP. So there's a there's a 
a way that you can do that. So you can set your, your receive on YouTube to HLS instead of RTMP. And then you can send up the HEVC um, encode that's going to take that 10-bit data and send it to, to YouTube. So that is a, that is a piece of the, the puzzle that, that you have to kind of, um, yeah, that you have to put together there. So that, that, um, so something that can, a, 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 you know, a, a encoder, I believe that OBS, um, now has an HDR. So you don't, with OBS, I don't even think you need HLS. I don't think you need an HLS encoder. I believe that OBS just supports it. Like you can just say, I want to do HDR to YouTube and it's a application level connection there. So, um, take a look at that. I, there might be a couple other ones that do the same thing, but, um, but take a look at, at, at that. Go ahead, Alexander. So are you saying hypothetically with OBS, I wouldn't need, I could just use my existing infrastructure, like my ATEM switcher to pipe that into OBS and then use OBS as the final? Yeah, I don't know what, what, how the, I don't know if the Mac, the minis really handle HDR very well, you know, the, as far as what they're passing through, but, um, but you might be able to do it all in log, but you, at some point you're gonna have to apply a LUT somewhere. And I don't know enough about OBS to know what LUTs could be applied. But OBS on its own is cap should be capable. There should be a setting there in in OBS that and a couple other apps, but OBS and maybe Wirecast that have an HDR output setting to YouTube. So um, and YouTube, the, I know YouTube engineering has been working with them on that to make sure that it was available to folks. So take a look at that and and let us know what you find out on on the OBS side. Uh, next question. Guy Cochran, Seattle. Uh, if we do a 4K 60p HDR pre-record, do we have the infrastructure to play it back live into the show? We uh, will by later this, by next week. <laughs> so, so we're, we technically, yes, we have it. Onino has the ability to do that and we can use that right now. But when we're in production, it has it gets taken away from us. And so we have to build a better solve uh, for that. So um, we've worked in the past with Softron. Softron actually, I mean, there's, we may be connected to why Softron has 10-bit output <laughs> so, so, or, or other things that I know is done. So um, so the uh, Softron's uh, play, um, there on the air has a 10-bit ten uh, 10-bit output um, as, as well as many, many channels via Dante to output. So our ability to send out 5.1 in HDR from Softron is, 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 is there. So we can absolutely play it back. We could technically could play it back with the Hyperdex. The Hyperdex can be, you know, because you just, it'll just play out whatever it has in there. Um, but we have had, you know, some issues with Hyperdex doing that. So, so, and it, it's been a little bit, it sometimes hasn't been a great experience to use them as an HDR playback. <laughs> and so, so, uh, so we have, uh, we've really moved towards uh, using the Softron as an output for the last year and a half and been pretty successful with it. And, but that's the only one, that's the only software playback on the Mac that I know of that will do 10 bit um, out, output. We've, definitely a request that we've logged with other playback systems that we've used like QLab and so on and so forth. They just don't support it quite yet. And um, so Softron has been the one that we used and we'll, I am, uh, I think they're going to graciously lend, you know, get us a copy of it. It's not cheap. And uh, I'm getting a new Mac mini for us to just use for playback as we get a little closer. So we had to move some stuff around financially to do that, but we're going to, we're going to do that uh, this, this week or next week. Um, and, and it takes not just the, the Mac Mini; it's a Mac Mini with a Sonnet box with a card, and you know, like there's a you know all those pieces so that I can push the out, SDI output. Uh, next question, Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia. What does the HDR to SDR mapping process look like? Is it possible to totally optimize and make the SDR feed look normal without impacting how the HDR feed looks? 
Um, I have never seen the SDR look identical to the original SDR. Um, you know, that's been something when it goes up to HDR and it comes back down, uh, it's not quite the same, but I find it to be very acceptable, you know, as we, as we go through that. So, so I think that, I think it'll be okay. Um, but I do think that it's, it's, uh, I think it'll be good. I mean, we're, what we do here is so absurd, uh, that I don't think anyone's going to notice on a day-to-day basis between uh, our conversion of SDR. And there are some opportunities to make it a little bit better in some cases, but it doesn't look exactly the same. So I don't think it necessarily looks worse, just looks different, um, than, than when you, when the original one went up. Uh, next question. Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, uh, Germany says, Alex, have you tried using OBS for streaming HDR to YouTube to save some cost while experimenting? Uh, I haven't. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with what I have to do next, which is that I have to, uh, you know, there's some other things we're going to do with this um, format. And so I'm kind of thinking down the road there. Uh, we probably could, I, it, you know, I, I'm not a super, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'd have to get a pretty, you know, spend some money on a PC, which I'm not that excited about. Um, it's not a general purpose computer for me. <laughs> so it's, so I, it, and, uh, uh, cause I don't think I would trust the Mac to, you know, start running through that. And right now I will admit that, uh, the configuration, there's a lot of tools. Um, so by building the pipeline into ele- the elemental cloud, um, I have the option to not only go, uh, HDR 10 and 5.1 to YouTube, I have the option of going Atmos and Vision to an HLS uh, uh, player. So my interests of where we're going to go next after this is, is means I want to be able to know that I can do a, um, I want to know that I can do, go to the Vision and Atmos conversion at the same time. So there's a slightly more complex thing that I'm kind of prepping for um, there. there. That's, why I'm, that's why I'm exercising that process. Um, and I'm trying to build the pipeline for where I want to get to. <laughs> and so, and, uh, and I have the scars from OBS in my back are so deep that opening it makes me twitch a little bit. Um, next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. Is there a preferred lighting temperature color combo for HDR? Black seems problematic. I think darker seems problematic. I mean, I think that it, and I think that the reason that we're seeing that in some of the dark areas is because it's just the general compression that's happening. And we don't notice it in SDR because a lot of compression is perceptual. It's deciding you're not gonna see this, so I'm gonna throw it away. And then when we take it into HDR, we're stretching it back out. We're seeing all the things that we weren't supposed to see. So um, so I think that that's, that's really the issue. Um, uh, I think a lot of what's really interesting is that a lot of times black, you know, when we're actually playing out HDR content into the HDR stream without going through all the SDR and compression and everything else, you're going to find that the blacks look amazing. I mean, that's that's part of what makes HDR look amazing is the detail in the blacks. And you can have shadows that have tons and tons of detail in them that you wouldn't normally see. So uh, next question. Next one comes from Chris. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. More bokeh or less bokeh? Is there a preferred look for Office Towers panelists? I think overall, the less, the more bokeh or the you know, the softer background looks nicer. <laughs> I don't think that's a ne- as necessarily an HDR thing, but I think that, you know, I think that it can get too soft. I think I'm on the outer edge of being too soft uh, for a variety of reasons. But, but I think that, uh, but I, but I think that it's uh, overall. I think it looks nice. It helps. The, it helps bring that foreground person, the, the subject, out. Go ahead, Bill. 
I think for most shots, it looks really great. The one exa- uh, exception I have is like Al- with Alexander, who has text in his uh, in his frame, the on air thing. Uh, that always confuses me because with the bokeh, which looks beautifully on his twink- twinkle lights. It's making that impossible to read, and it distracts me because I'm trying to read it because I can see that it's letters. But that's the only circumstance that Boca Alex bothers is me. making you work. He's just making you work. Making you work it's, harder. It's, it's the box <laughs> inside of the box. Uh, anyway, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I was I was thinking that the on in Alexander shot actually reads almost like CNN. Um, Alex, what is the uh, Lindsay? Alex Lindsay, what is the f stop of your lens? I would have to go back and read it. You know, ATM doesn't tell you what it is, but it's probably in the l- less than two. So you could you can read it off the app, the, no, the, the phone app, app. Tell you? Oh, the yeah, phone app. Oh, I don't have the phone app open right now. I have. Oh, well, that's it. I'm I'm sorry for you. I'm viewing our show right now through HDR. I can't I can't multitask. That's that's, that's too much. But yeah, it's probably in the it's probably two or one point eight or something like that. Okay. Um, next question. Alexander Knight, Vancouver again. Why are we converting from 30 to 60 frames per second? What's That's what YouTube is reporting on the HDR feed. Yes. Again, we're throwing the ball to where the receiver is going to be, not where the receiver is right now. So uh, when we when we deliver footage, uh, if, if we are able to get our hands on an H, uh, the LU800 from LiveView, and, and when we deliver playback footage and we deliver footage from the set, uh, we'll be delivering that at 60 frames a second. And um, and so that, you know, what we need to do is have a pipeline that's designed for 60. And then we're still coming at 30 and that's going to be the limitation of what we have here. Uh, but but the, and I think when we're moving around and talking, I think 30 is probably okay. Um, but one of the things that we found is that for a lot of footage, especially kind of handheld and everything else, it's a lot less framey and a lot more immediate. It will feel more like you're there. So the as you increase that frame rate, the more visceral the uh, the video feels. Filmmakers don't like that. They want to have it 24, and that's fine. And and there's a bunch of reasons for that that are good. If if you get the frame rate 60 is fine. When you go over about 95 frames a second, your brain starts to start starts to move away from thinking of it as video and starts to think of it as as just a window. And then you can create disorientation, seasickness, all kinds of other things when you start doing heavy camera moves in, in high frame rates. But we're not dealing with that here. But you're, you're going to find that as we start to stream these things and they're 60, you're going to feel more like you're like you're there, you know. And so, um, but our footage will be stuck at 30. And, and again, we're, these are baby steps. But but when we start to do more 60, uh, when you get used to 60 frames a second, it's really hard to go back to 30 or 24 because... When you're doing live streaming, I mean, I'm sure film is fine, but but when you're doing live streaming, you really, the 60 feels a lot more like you're there. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, when you're converting from 30 to 60, is there any perceptible difference in terms of the motion? Can you see a difference at all? I mean, I get, obviously, we're not moving it's around more bandwidth. much. But. <laughs> it's more bandwidth. So if you don't have enough bandwidth to support it, it might it might feel a little less, but but the, uh, uh, but that's the, you know, that's the process there. Yeah. So it just, it, but it, otherwise, it should look exactly the same. Uh, it, there's a chance for it to be a little more choppy if you start dropping frames um, because your 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 cadence isn't correct. But in general, if you're getting all the frames, the 30 and the 60 should look the same. That's exactly what happened when, if you look at Avatar, Avatar is not switching from 24 to 48. It's doubling 24 and then streaming 48 when it's 48. <laughs> like, so that's that's how that you know. So it's always 48 uh, when when you're watching it. Uh, next question. 
Douglas Carmichael, uh, would there be any portable monitors like the U-Perfect range that can handle HDR? Go ahead, Yanni. That would be the model that I have here in my hand. This is the uh, HDR version of the 17-inch. It's not cheap. It's 699 bucks. The nice thing is that it has a Visa mounts on the back, and it's super thin, and you can power it either from the MacBook or you can power it with a USB-C battery brick. And I did just try to hook up from my phone to see if I can pipe HDR into it with a little Apple uh, dongle, but didn't have enough oomph, so it just made it black. So that doesn't work. I'm well, and also the, the player, the YouTube player, won't know what to do with it on a mobile device. So you have to plug it into uh, an Apple TV. The Apple TV will have the right flag and it'll know what to do with it, but where the phone, the, the phone won't, won't. What about an iPad? I don't that think it, it's iPad. just OT. I believe all of this will eventually be supported, but I think that if you try to output, I don't think that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'd, we'd have to test it. And one of the things, yeah, we are really working on getting some more tests. One of the next things you're going to start seeing us do is do some um, tests when we get that playback system in, is do some playback where we're, we're playing out known HDR footage so that we can see, and then we can do some of those tests and see if it works. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, Alex? Yeah, on that Uperfect monitor, Guy, are you happy with the overall brightness? I mean, in a well-lit studio environment like yours, or can you see that display okay? It's okay. I mean, it, it, I think it says it's four or five hundred nits uh, HDR. So I mean, it's okay. It's not super bright. It's not a thousand, but for what it is, it's 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 nice. Next question. Next one comes to us from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Would you agree that our eyeballs and processing in our brain is actually the highest of dynamic ranges? Having been in light cueing sessions all week, I've been thinking about this. Go, ahead, John. For human perception, yes, but there are lots of animals that can see significantly more color and brightness than humans can. Yeah, the, and the thing to note, note is like we think we talk a lot about nits. I, I went to a great demo at Adobe, and they were kind of. It's amazing how quickly we can adjust to things. So they were showing us a hundred nits, which is standard defi- dynamic range, and then they were then they were showing us a thousand, and like wow, the thousand looks really really bright. And so we got used to this going back and forth. It's, it's really they're really deceptive. They're like. They get go back and forth between a hundred and a thousand, a hundred and thousand, and then they went from a thousand to four thousand, and suddenly just looked like a different image from the four thousand, and the hundred nits look like mud, you know. And and the, the what that really shows is how quickly our eyes start to adjust to whatever they're there. And now people will say, "Oh, you can't look at a four thousand nit monitor or, uh, or earlier <laughs> the colors off your face or whatever." But one of the things that when you start taking a light sampler and you point at things, you can look through a little. Uh, target and point at it. And one of the things they showed was an image of, you know, you're standing in a uh, an alley and you're looking at the wall. That wall is 9,000 nits. <laughs> like it's it's not, and that's not even direct sunlight. And so, uh, so the thing is, is that we're, you know, our, what's problematic is when it's a dark area and you're seeing a little window of it is, is 4,000 nits or 1,000 nits. And that's in monitors having a lot of uh, contrast can have your eyes open up to, to get the overall and be pulling in huge amounts of light. But if it's a, if the ambient is high enough, uh, then you you tend to be able to you know it's it we're able to handle a lot because we have these great ways to change the aperture in our eyes. Um, yeah, go ahead, Chris. I find it interesting that apps like um, actually it might be just Instagram uh, choose to ignore. Uh, your um, brightness setting on my phone 
when it hits something that's HDR. Mm. Like yeah, it's like I have I can have it turned way down so it's like easy to to watch at night, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it just it's like, yeah, we don't care what you have your phone set to. We're going to give you the, you know, a window to the sun. <laughs> well, and that's 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 because I, otherwise people are like, why does this look? Why well, I, I took this in HDR? Why does it look so bad? That's the other side of that. Yeah. Yeah, but but myself as as the viewer, as the right. like, I've set the device to a thing, and Instagram just like, yeah, no, we don't care. <laughs> we don't care. We're going to give you, know, you what's, we're going to give you both barrels. It might actually be done from the Apple because the photos will do the same thing. If you look at an HDR, if you look through images that were taken by your iPhone and you get to an HDR, you know, because most of the time it's shooting HDR, it'll automatically pop to the brightest thing that it needs to to show it to you, no matter what. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I think the iBrain connection is the best thing for uh, content that is designed for human beings to watch. Everybody's a little bit different in how they perceive it. But yeah, as other people have mentioned, there's things outside of that. I remember my early days of doing a lot of narration work for the McDonnell Douglas Helicopter Company when they were bringing in the early FLIR battlefield things and we saw heat for the first time. I was amazed at that and realized there are limitations to every system. So it's a process of getting something that is the correct thing to monitor what you're trying to do. Next question. Next one comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Where does Zoom tell you that you're watching an HDR on YouTube? Zoom doesn't know. Zoom is just passing us SDR and then we're, we're moving into HDR. Um, next question. Next question comes from Chris Wider in Lafayette, Indiana. Other than using a client like Lyrics, how could we do direct HDR feeds for the show? Well, we could theoretically, I mean, we're talking about this a little bit. We could um, do some curves where we deliver everything. We do the PQ curve um, without any of the metadata and pass it to each other. We can't do this in in Zoom right now because uh, it doesn't do 10-bit. So if we did this kind of clamped down version of ourselves and sent it to, we would need 10-bit at least to get it to us um, to extend that. Um, there may be other tools that we could use, but right now Zoom doesn't have uh, a 10-bit solution. So that would be, uh, we wouldn't be able to do it through Zoom um, to do those feeds. As far as uh, delivering those, again, if you have a 10-bit output, we can theoretically clamp it and send it out in something that looks like, you know, it's just, it just looks, it, it, you're clamping that down, sending it out, and then bringing it and opening it back up again. But you need the bit depth, either 10 or 12-bit to do that. So again, things like Streambox and other things could possibly do that. But without 10-bit um, delivery, you just don't have enough uh, to describe it. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Jesse Kester in Glendale. Do we have rough numbers on where we should be sitting on our waveform scopes? I imagine there's a sweet spot for blacks, face, and highlights. Right now, we're finding that mostly a well-exposed image is what works um, when we're just taking the SDR to HDR conversion. if we Again, there may be a time when we apply the curve ahead of time. This might be an experiment we do in the future, which is that, hey, what if we put the PQ curve on the delivery and then stretch it back out again? But I think that if we did that right now with 8-bit and compressed, it would just look all beat up. So right now, it's just making sure that your your highlights are right at near 100 and your blacks are right near black. And and then you, you can play a little bit with those mid-tones. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. And he says, could Mimo Live send out an HDR stream? Not that I know of. Uh, not yet. So I think that that's still something that maybe is in the works. Um, next question. Kai Cochran in Seattle. Uh, if we later rewatch the HDR feed on an Apple TV 4K on an HDR-capable display, will it still be as accurate as the live feed? 
Yeah, you should see it exactly the same way. As it, so if you watch this later and go through it, you should be able to take it and and see it in in that stream. And I don't know, again, I don't know what, I kind of sprung it on Mickey today. So I don't know whether uh, the 5.1 is really working, but um, there's also, there can be some 5.1. Sometimes you'll see us doing channel tech checks and you'll, you'll hear it and even in posts. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Jesse Kester again. How does bit depth compare in bandwidth to resolution changes, compression being equal? For example, is 8-bit to 10-bit a similar jump in data weight to 1080 to 4K? No, it's actually less. So adding more bits to it um, will be, uh, it won't be, it's not linear to the same, in the same way that, you know, what you have, when you go from 10, 1080p to 4K. I don't know what, I kind of, you are sprung it on Mickey oh, today. So I don't know whether uh, the 5.1 is really Chris, working, but um, there's also, myself. there can be some 5.1. Sometimes you'll see us doing uh, channel checks and uh, you'll, you'll hear it and pass it back to myself. Uh, next question. All right. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. He said, would HDR or higher resolution have more? I don't know what's going on. Hold on. Like what just happened there? There was some feed getting into the audio somewhere. Wow. Okay. That was really confusing. Okay. So I didn't finish the, didn't finish what I was doing there. Um, What the, uh, what was the, um, so what I was going to say with the 10 bit and 8 bit is that the extra bits there are not going to make the same amount of bandwidth. But they're very important because now you're describing um, you're, at 10 bit, you have 10, 1024, uh, 1024 bits per uh, channel instead of 256 bits per channel. So that creates new stairs that, you know, it's four times as many stairs to get from uh, from the um, from the eight bit to the 10 bit. So you can you have a lot less posterization. That's really what you what you get out of out of that 10 bit. Uh, next question. Uh, Douglas Carmichael, would HDR or higher resolution have more curb appeal when marketing content to the average consumer? Probably not. <laughs> like, you know, I don't think it'll make any difference. We're, we're changing, you know, we're, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to notice it right now. We're just trying to figure it out because over time, people are going to expect it to be an HDR. It's not going to, it's just going to be something that slides along and slowly becomes what every TV does. And, you know, and so a lot of this kind of content will feel very uh, ours will feel very vibrant and a lot of stuff will feel very drab um, in the not too, you know, probably another year or two. So we're putting things out that aren't not a problem right now. But what will happen is we will be producing shows seamlessly at five, 5.1 and, and HDR by the end of the summer. Um, and it won't be a thing. It won't be something we think about. All the stuff works. And, and as that happens, you know, what's happening now is they're not making any new TVs that are only standard def- dynamic range. <laughs> like they don't make those anymore. And so the thing is, is suddenly, again, when you think about how things feel, what you're going to have is suddenly we're producing shows that just feel more lively, feel more real, feel more important. And everyone else will look like they, like someone poured coffee over them compared to what we're doing. This is early days. It's not working yet. <laughs> like it's, we're, we're, but we're getting close. Um, and that's the, that's the real, that's what we're working on. We're throwing the ball way down the field to a place that re- the receiver is still 20 yards away from, 30 yards away from as we go down. So that's what we're, and then the idea is that we're going to teach everybody else how to do it so that there's a lot of people who are benefiting from that. Um, next question. Paul Terry Wallace has our last question today. What's the deal with the HDR mode for the Insta360 Link camera? That's a little bit of marketing. It's really tone mapping. So basically, when the when it's delivering HDR, it's not really delivering true HDR. It's it's taking the highlights and mapping them down to to that. So that's what you uh, want to look at there. There we go.
So uh, we have uh, we've gotten to the end. There's a that, that filled up the hour quite nicely. When we got to the beginning, I was like, I don't know if the, I, every time we do these ruthless reviews, I'm like, I don't think we're going to get to the end of the hour. <laughs> I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, but uh, thanks so much for thanks to all of the folks willing to play. Thanks to the great questions from the both in the first hour and the second hour. We did a lot of questions today. Thanks to the great a lot of great questions um, both in both hours uh, from the from the producers and of course thanks to the panelists for everyone. Uh, uh, we can't do this without you. Thanks for being willing, being part of being a guinea pig <laughs> and allowing us to figure this out and being part of that whole process. And of course, thanks to the amazing crew um, that's in the uh, that's in the background that makes all this stuff happen and, and allows us to start keep on experimenting with all these things and figuring this all out. And and you know they're really rarely running against the asphalt a lot. <laughs> you know, it's just an incredible crew, um, both in development as well as the folks that are that are doing this. And if you want to learn how we do this, the best way to do it is jump on the crew. You know, just jump on the production crew. You can contact Josh Kaufman. Um, we have things that you can fill out to jump in. We're doing, um, we are doing uh, orientations the first Saturday of every month. So the next one's April 1st. It's not a joke. And uh, we will be doing, and we talk a little bit about about that, the volunteering process. But if you're interested in how this works, I think we are slowly building the future together, all of us. And uh, and so, um, but the best way to figure out how the mechanics work is to jump on and just do it. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Sorry about that, Alex. I was telling my fault. I'm cutting your pay in half. In fact, I'm going to cut it. I'm going to cut it more in half. I'm, I'm not paying you for a month. <laughs> wow. I'm docking your pay. Harsh. <laughs> I, I was what I was doing is I was listening to the uh, the stereo version of the thing, and Bill was over here, and you were in here. Oh, you were listening to the five dot one. Yeah, a stereo version of the five one. Yeah. Bill, I'm gonna write into my clothes. I didn't know if I should close or you should close. <laughs> Very confusing. We are in a conflicted state. I want my contact to specify that if you position me in space, it must be below because I want to be in the basement talking up to people, scaring them. The riders are now going to have like five dot one positioning. Like I want to be, I want to be centered. Don't, don't you put me in a surround. Don't you put me in a surround. 